Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMALOTN, joined by my boy, Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter, and we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 55. Goddamn, Cody, I can't believe it's been 55 events since they've been doing it inside the Apex, which is headlined by Holly Holm versus Ketlin Vieira, a bantamweight scrap for the women. Uh, very interesting. Will tell us where Ketlin Vieira ranks in this division now and whether Holly Holm at 40 years old can still go out there and get it done. Cody, this is the last UFC event of a seven-week stretch that we've had of consecutive events. You looking to this off? You looking forward to the off week or or what? But what, what what's your excitement level going into this card and then obviously the off week next week? Yeah, I'm looking for the off week for sure because obviously it hasn't been a great stretch for myself in particular in terms of the parlays. The props have been pretty good. You know, two of the last three weeks we went two of three. We're hitting the nice plus money ones. Last week, Michael Johnson decides to go out and score his first TKO victory in like six years. We were on that, right? So yeah. uh, there's been some benefit to the props for sure, but it's just such a long grind. I look at it like the UFC has four different stages of cards, right? They've got their pay-per-views. It's like, oh, okay, it's a big premier fight, right? Then they've got like nice fight night cards, which this isn't, by the way. <laughs> and then they've got these cards like this, which are almost like uh, advanced contender series, right? They'll throw on a little headliner for you, but for the most part, they're just looking to throw on a couple you know, lowly seated fighters, maybe looking for a fight. Uh, they got contracts, they got to fill out stuff. So is the excitement level there? Like maybe not, but listen, if we can find value, we can hit a couple plays, we can hit some plus money, we can turn this into a profitable card, then as always, you're definitely excited for it. And then in terms of having an off week, again, yes, excited, but there's always something else. You know, there'll be an Eagle FC, which is Friday, there's LFAs, there's PFLs, there's Bellators, like there is always something to fill that void. But uh, as always, happy to be joined by you, happy to talk some fights. And um, I, I kind of feel decent about this card. So I'd like to hear your opinion and see if we can lock some stuff down. Yeah, I always like when we're able to go into this kind of blind from each other's picks and just, you know, be surprised by, you know, this guy's taking Earl Schmidich this week or some shit like that, right? Like, I, I have no idea what your reads are on this. <laughs> exactly. I was hoping for that that reaction from this as I brought up that guy's name. But we'll obviously talk about that fight very shortly here. Before we do get into the breakdowns, though, I do want to uh, start this new thing with the, with Cloudbed, obviously one of our sponsors for the show. And uh, we've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks. They've been very responsive in terms of the props that we want to want them to put on their website. So I thought we might as well start to give love to them and show you guys uh, directly in terms of what they bring to the table. So last week, we had a couple of things that we touched upon, and I'll add it to the stream here right now. Hopefully you guys can see the props here. So the one at the top here is the Contender Series debutants in terms of the wins. How many of them will win? Obviously, we had Jake Hadley, Carlos Candelario, and Manuel Torres. Only one of them hit. And it ended up cashing at plus 145 if you took only one of them to hit. And if you guys remember, Manuel Torres' money line was minus 125. So if you guys just chose that one, you would have gotten a better price on it. But again, you're also taking into consideration Hadley, you know, getting upset by Nasimento there. And then obviously Candelario getting controlled by the Japanese sensation that's jumping onto the UFC scene right now. Next up, we have the total takedowns. And this is something that me and Cody talked about on the back end of the show there. They set it at over under 24 and a half takedowns. The under actually ended up hitting there. It was 21 takedowns that was landed. We were expecting to get three, four, maybe even five takedowns from the Petrovsky and Maximov fight. However, <laughs> that fight, that fight didn't even last that long at all. So we didn't we didn't get any takedowns there other than the, the Petrovsky finisher. Speaking of Petrovsky, quickest finish on the card. Andre Petrovsky cashes at plus 2,400 as the quickest finish on the card there. I believe he submits Maximov within like a minute and 13 seconds, if I'm not mistaken. 
damn, that hurt for a lot of people, I'm pretty sure. And then uh, will all three women's belts go to the decision? They did. So if you <laughs> took that. Old trusty. Yes, <laughs> yeah, old trusty. Plus, plus 210 for all three women's fights go to decision. You would have cashed that if you took the yes. Uh, which fight will receive fight of the night bonus? This one shocked a lot of people. Plus 1,000 on Amanda Hebus and Catelyn Chukagian. There were other fights that were much more deserving, at least in my opinion, but they do end up, end up walking away with those honors. And I believe it's Catelyn Chukagian who's been in the UFC for six years. And this was the first time she ever cashed uh, or actually even got a, a performance bonus, a fight night bonus. So uh, good for her for getting that, especially with the first fight on her new contract. And then lastly, which main card fighter will record the fastest finish? It was Ryan Spann, plus 1,000 he hit as he uh, chokes out Iwan Kutalaba, I believe, two minutes into the first round of their fight. So make sure you guys go out there, check out CloudBet. Uh, link is in the description below. Uh, I believe they're the first ever cryptocurrency sportsbook on the market. So make sure you go, guys go check them out, show them some love. And also... Show Bet Online some love as well. If you love degenerate MMA gambling, if you want early lines, early props, or even regional MMA betting, Bet Online is the place to do it. Make sure you guys check out it, check it out in the description below. They have a 50% welcome bonus up to one grand for you guys. So make sure you guys go check that out. Show them some love. Let them know the propping you up, boys, sent you over. All right, Cody. We got 11 fights to go over for this weekend, so let's kick it off with the first fight of the night. We got a women's strawweight fight kicking off the card here. Elise Reed, fresh off a big upset victory back at UFC London over Corey McKenna. She's taking on uh, Sam Hughes here in terms of odds. We're looking at minus 150 for Elise Reed, plus 130 the return on Sam Hughes. Uh, th this is this is like me. This is me as a pig in shit apparently like pretty much yeah i mean i love low level women's mma especially in terms of betting and especially when you give me plus money on the side that i feel pretty good about so i do like sam hughes on this side of the the uh, or at least in this side of the fight i know a lot of people aren't really that big on her especially the way that she started her ufc career uh losing via finish technically to tisha torres in her ufc debut although on short notice next fight she loses to loma lupumi next fight she loses to luana pinero but she's managed to pick up a couple dubs here now uh and hold hopefully uh, able to get another one here against Elise Reed. When she's at her best, I think she looks like what, she, what we saw in the Vanessa Demopoulos fight, minus the inverted triangle choke that she ended up getting submitted by. She's able to mix up her striking with her takedowns, with her clinch game, and she presents a very good overall mixed martial arts fight. And I feel like if she can do that here against Elise Reed, she'll be very successful. Elise Reed, Taekwondo background, karate background. You can see it in the style whenever she fights and she, and she strikes specifically. And you saw it in the Corey McKenna fight. She improved her takedown defense, or at least improved her ability to get back to the feet because she did get taken down three for three. Sorry, she got taken down three times in that fight and got, got controlled for about three and a half minutes. But she did a good job in terms of scrambling, getting back to her feet, and then punishing Corey McKenna on the feet with her strikes. I think Sam Hughes will obviously be at a slight disadvantage in terms of the striking, but her ability to mix up the clinch, maybe even land some takedowns and, you know, get some control time. I'm not expecting her to Khabib her by any means, but I do think she'll get enough control time here to sway the judges in her favor. And as long as she doesn't get dropped or pieced up too much by Elise Reed here, she should start to pull away with this fight and more than likely win it via decision. So I'm going to go with Sam Page. Again, I know a lot of people are not big on her, but I do feel like this is a good stylistic matchup. I think that there's a, a too much of a market overcorrection on the Elise Reed side of things, especially considering she was like a plus 200 underdog to Corey McKenna because people didn't think she can get up off of her back because of the Sajar Eubanks fight. But I think that's just people 
undervaluing how good Sajar Eubanks is actually on the ground. I know she has an abysmal record, MMA record overall, but when she has a significant grappling advantage over opponents, that's when we get the fight like we saw with Elise Reed. So no way Corey McKinnon was going to do that. But I'm going to take uh, Sam Hughes here to mix in a couple of takedowns, land some striking, get some cage control, and uh, grind this fight out. So Sam Hughes by decision, currently sitting at plus 215. Sign me up, Cody. I have a feeling you're on the other end here. So please plead your case, my friend. Yeah, I'm going to go the other side in this one, uh, to be honest with you. Sam Hughes, it, what she looks like at her best, the Vanessa Demopoulos fight. Keep in mind, Vanessa Demopoulos, not exactly known for her striking. So in those kind of fights, she can maybe put a bit, bit of a display on. But her just come forward, don't cut angles, limited footwork style, like it's going to get chewed off by people that can fight to the outside and have a long-rangey kick game. Her last fight out against Estela Nunes, the first round, it's not all that competitive, truth be told. The commentators are absolutely just shitting on her. She's not letting her hands go, and she's following. Estela Nunes basically lands everything she wants to, very easily wins the first round. Second round, Estela Nunes just tires out. Those are the facts, right? As she tires out from moving backwards, <clears throat> you start to see it become a little more competitive. You see Hughes start to land her shots a little bit, force the clinch a little bit, greases out that second round, close second round. And of course, Nunez is tired. So the third round is all Sam Hughes. Sam Hughes benefited largely from the fact that Estella Nunez, a fighter known to have a limited gas tank, did gas out in that spot. I think Elise Reed's done a good job of uh, proving me wrong, certainly. I had her, no way she beats Jasmine Jasta Devizius. And then even watching the fight, I didn't think she won that fight. But they, that, that's you know, a robbery, bro. I, I, I thought know. that was a robbery. I thought that was a robbery. I mean, maybe it's the Canadian side of things, but just like flat out, I thought Jasmine won that fight. And so I had a bad taste in my mouth with Elise Reed right off the get-go. When she debuts against Sinjara Eubank, she moves up a weight class on short notice. She's not a 25er, but she moves up to take on someone who is a very large flyweight. In fact, struggles to make bantamweight. Sinjara Eubank is very, very large, very good grappler, Lloyd Urban black belt. That's a tough spot to jump up. And, and of course, she gets taken down. She gets submitted in the first round, doesn't get a good counter self. So as you mentioned, the Corey McKenna fight, now she's coming in as some big underdog. But really, like, has she had a fair shot? Jasmine's a stud. And, and for the record, Sinjara Eubanks, they're not studs. Stud's a male term. They are top talents. They're very, studette. very, yeah, studette. a studette. <laughs> <laughs> they are world-class dams, man. Um, and I, and I, I think that she's fought a pretty good level. The Corey McKenna fight, I'm thinking she's going to get taken down. I'm thinking she's going to get controlled. Even if neither of those two things happen, McKenna always comes forward. She's going to pressure her backwards. That front, that front pressure, she's eventually going to find the target. And none of it was true. Lise did an excellent job of fighting off her back foot, finding the target, landing at will in the first couple of rounds. Cardio looked good. Takedown defense looked much improved. Ability to get back up looked much improved. And of course, the striking was on point. So I'm thinking in this fight with Sam Hughes, Sam will largely do what she always does, which is just come forward. And if Lee Reed can stay on her back foot, stay on the outside, I'm not as worried about her getting tired and gassing out. So I think that she just outpoints her from the outside. And the Elise Reed by decision, because I think we're both agreeing that at least the fight's going to go 15. Uh, the Elise Reed by decision plus 105. So that's where I settled. If you guys like a little bit of chalk, fight goes to the decision, currently sits at minus 300. That seems to be the spot for uh, that at least me and Cody agree upon here. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We got Chase Hooper coming in as a plus 155 dog going up against Felipe Kaladish, and, uh, and he's coming in as a minus 180 favorite. Very weird fight here, right? Like right off the bat, you got to assume that the, the Chase Hooper fade is in effect, right? It, it's very difficult to actually muster up the courage to back a guy that, you know, is pretty much a, a poor man's version of Ryan Hall. Like he has no striking game. He wants to go out there, desperation takedowns, try to get his jiu-jitsu going. And I think his 
like like his star power per se that the UFC kind of banked on when he first came into the UFC did him a disservice, right? He's one of those guys that still needed some molding, still needed some crafting before going out there and fighting the upper echelon of guys. Like, remember when he was a, a favorite to Alex Caceres? Like, I, I did, really didn't get that. I think it was a lot of it was based on the recency bias with Alex Caceres coming off that submission loss to Cron Gracie. But, like, we're talking about Cron and, and Chase Hooper here, for God's sakes, right? So, uh, very unfortunate there for uh, uh, Chase Hooper to have to go into that fight and be assumed to be the winner. Maybe that got to his head a little bit, and Alex Caceres gave him a a veteran lesson that night then he uh gets that win over peter barrett those are the types of guys he should should be facing like peter barrett is like in the upper echelon of the regional scene that's the type of guys he should be fighting not steven peterson who's a wily veteran who goes out there and still beats him as well you were gonna peter, add cody peter barrett put a beating on him for two rounds and exactly. got the bar in the third it wasn't exactly, exactly a good fight for him truth be told exactly but like he's Peter Bear is one of those guys that he can get away with, you know, getting beat on for 12 minutes and then eventually finding a heel hook out of nowhere because he's not getting a heel hook. I'd be surprised if he gets a heel hook here on Felipe Kolaris, right? Like, that's yeah. what I mean. He could get beat on by Felipe for 12 and a half minutes and not get that heel hook. But the thing with me with Kolaris is he should be good enough on the ground to get away from any of the submissions of Cooper. But as fights start to go on, Kolaris is one of those guys that gets a little bit sloppier as fights go on. And that kind of gives me some hesitation in terms of fully trusting him in this spot. He should win the beginning parts of this fight. And knowing how much of a wild man he is, he's probably going to engage Hooper on the ground. And that, you know, it could work out for him, as we saw with Steven Peterson, as we saw with Alex Caceres. They're able to stay out of the submissions, but still stay in top position, landing good ground and pound from on top, and clearly winning those positions. But you're still kind of playing with a little bit of fire. It's like... It's like going into Chase Hooper's domain, essentially, and trying to beat him there. Whereas you can just try to fight him on the feet. He's very difficult to strike with, right? Because he's one of those guys that just Eminari rolls or goes for desperation takedowns. The 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 improvements I saw between the Alex Caceres fight and the um, and two fights later against uh, Steven Peterson was that he was actually starting to throw punches behind his desperation takedowns now. He wasn't just going out there and trying to snatch that single leg or snatch that desperation double leg. So we are seeing slight improvements from him, but I still don't think he has what it takes to cut it in the UFC. Like the only reason the UFC is really pushing him is because he was doing numbers on YouTube with this contender series fight. Same thing with Sean O'Malley, but with Sean O'Malley, his game is a lot more complete than we're seeing with uh, Chase Hooper. So I, I am going to lean with the Felipe Clarish side. But the prop that I'm kind of leaning on the most here is the over two and a half at minus 160. I do think that Hooper is difficult to finish just because of his slippery ways and how he just, you know, he doesn't strike long enough for anybody to really knock him out. But he tries to go for takedowns and then he stays safe on bottom and Clarice will likely just ride him out over there. We saw Clarice ride Domingo Polarte for almost two rounds of an entire fight just by staying on his back. So I'd be surprised if either guy actually gets a submission in this spot. If Clarish somehow lands this Hail Mary bomb on him and knocks him out, that's the possibility of a finish. But I do think we see this go over the 12 and a half minute mark. And I do think we see Clarish get his hand raised via decision in this spot, which currently sits at plus 150. Let me know your thoughts on Chase Hooper here and, uh, you know, whether you think he actually has what it takes to cut it in the bottom barrel of the UFC or should they relegate him back to the, uh, the regional scene? Because they initially did give him like a, a regional circuit development deal, didn't, did they not? Yeah, he signed after the Contender Series and he was only 18, so he became the youngest fighter to sign a UFC contract. Now, the youngest fighter to fight in the UFC is Joe Lozon's younger brother, Dan, who was 18 and a half. But wow. Hooper signed a contract younger, never actually fought in the UFC, right? They signed him to like this developmental deal where they would pay him still, not a not a 10 and 10, not an 8 and 8, whatever. But the UFC would still pay him and he would just fight on these other regional promotions. 
under contract with him, them, right? And he doesn't do all that good. His very next fight was that LaShawn Alcock, and who's seven and eight, and ended up being a draw because of a 10-8 round, right? So uh, not exactly a great performance. And then since then, it's been, you know, somewhat low level for the most part. But he's so goddamn young, and that's where I think we can easily shit on him, and everybody shits on him. And I will spend some time in this segment shitting on him. But uh, he's still only 22 years old. So when you're fighting in the UFC, you're that young. Of course, you're going to be one-dimensional. Because, like, what else have you had time in your young adult life to train, right? He's an IBJJF blue belt champion. Blue belt. So it's not like he's some high-level black belt. He's not one of these guys, Rodolfo Vieira, the fight hits the ground, you're probably screwed. Like, he's good, he's long, he's lengthy, he's got some jiu-jitsu. But it's not like he's so good in that Cron Gracie. So good in that one thing that you can get away with just being a, a one-dimensional fighter. But he's young. It's going to get better. It just depends if he puts the work into it. So when he lost to Bruce Leroy, 100% agree. It's like, oh, man, I exposed him. Not at this level. But, geez, Bruce Leroy's got like 24 UFC fights under his belt. He's on the Ultimate Fighter 10 years ago. Has fought a lot of highly ranked guys within the division, right? Well, I guess that's a kind of a stiff test for a young kid, no? So you give him a pass there. And I think he looked better against Pete Barrett, although he lost the first two rounds and got the submission in the third. And I think he looked better against Steven Peterson, where he scored a career-high three takedowns, right? Because normally he'll maybe get one, right? He got three against Peterson. He was throwing some punches. He was setting it up a little bit. He's just too physically immature. He's not strong enough. He's fighting full-grown men who have got 15, 20 fights on, under the resume. And he's just not strong enough to get these guys down with his limited wrestling. The little vignettes are Ben Askren. Oh, it's his dad. That's all funny. He's not actually training with Ben Askren. So his wrestling's not going to improve. And his strike is not very good. And his jiu-jitsu is not elite. This kid's going to be in a lot of trouble. But here's where I'm a little bit uh, encouraged, right? So he loses to Bruce Leroy, and he fights six months later against Pete Barrett. Beats Pete Barrett, and he fights six months later against Steve Peterson. Now, uh, he, whatever, he took six months later, he fought Honato Makano, excellent BJJ black belt in that Fury FC grappling match. The thing is, though, is he hasn't fought since the Steven Peterson fight, which is a year ago. Normally, he's fighting every six months, and you see small improvements. Now, he's a full year off, so I expect to see some good improvements. He's also going from like 21 years old to 22 years old, which for physical development is going to be huge. And then like I got this like nagging suspicion deep down in my gut that the UFC matchmakers know exactly what they're doing. They would love to get him a victory. They'd love to try to keep this little skinny McLovin looking dude getting some wins in the UFC because it's easy to market. Let's be real here. Uh, Michael Sarah, probably a better example. Dude looks just like him. It's crazy. Uh, you you, you want to keep the going. So who could you possibly give him? And now here's where Felipe Corrales looks good, you know, in some aspects, but looks looks like a good matchup for Hooper and some other ones. First and foremost, Felipe Corrales has fought at 145, but he's a 35 through and through. Doesn't even look that big at 35. Last fight against Chris Gutierrez, obviously, at 135. The Montel Jackson fight where he got taken down 11 times was at 135. He stands five foot eight, and he'll be taking on Chase Hooper, who's six foot one. So Hooper with a six-inch height advantage, I believe a four or five, maybe even a six-inch reach advantage. Not that the reach will come into play here. He's just a physically much bigger guy, right? So even though he's weak, compared to most featherweights, uh, against this natural bantamweight, he could be okay. Thing number two, Corrales is super reckless, man. Like, when he strikes, he just yeah. zombies you and comes forward. He gives up a pile of takedowns. So, yes, Hooper's got 18% takedown accuracy in the UFC. Abysmal numbers. Abysmal. Gonna have to get those numbers up, dog. <clears throat> against this type of opponent, he might just be able to grab a hold of him, push him up against the cage, and just peel him to the ground. Get one hook in and just peel him. An Iminari roll. Whatever you have to do to just cause a fight to hit the ground, 
he could create these transitions. And so the, if you're the UFC, you want to get him a win. You got to go for a bottom of the barrel guy. This guy is considered bottom of the barrel. He's got a reckless style. Not like his takedown defense is super good. Uh, he's got a little bit of a name, but he's he's undersized. Could make sense. Now, the last time I had this exact same feeling was last week. Last week, we've got Jake Hadley, who apparently pissed everybody off, and he's <laughs> taking on Alan Nascimento, who's 0-2 in the UFC. Now, why would the matchmakers, who don't like this guy, give him some bump? Well, that's because Alan Nascimento is, in fact, not a bum, right? So... <laughs> Uh, they knew what they were doing, right? Now, can they set up wins and losses? No, it's a sport. Anything can happen. And as you can see from my recent track record, Rose doesn't throw any punches. Uh, Rackage blows out his own leg after winning the first two rounds. Yeah, they expect the unexpected. Expect the unexpected. But uh, I think the UFC have done their best job to set Chase Hooper up with what would be considered a winnable fight of sorts. So we are on the same page over two and a half, minus 165. I like fight goes the distance, minus 135. But Hooper by decision plus three fifty. The degenerate side of me interested, but you got to see weigh-ins. And for the record, don't invest much in it because it's Chase Hooper. It Chase Hooper. Uh, I just think it's not just like a full-blown. Let's write this guy off. He's twenty-two. The improvements could come. When this kid's twenty-eight and he's got twenty UFC fights, if he ever makes it that far, could get cut, of course. Uh, it would be like, oh yeah, remember when he was twenty and he was fighting in the UFC? Oh, and those days are way behind you. He's got to win over uh, David uh, Daniel Tamer's brother or sorry, David Tamer's brother, Daniel, right? Like three-time Swedish Muay Thai champion, like big, full-grown man, like strong guy. He just hasn't been putting it together. There is something there. There is something there. I'm hoping with a year-long layoff, come back and show it. And Corrales, he could win. Of course he could win, but at least they've given him a proper opponent who's kind of uh, right at the bottom of the barrel with him. Honestly, I totally forgot about that Daniel Tamor fight. Like <laughs> Daniel Tamor was a hoot to bet against, and also betting his violence props always was was the best. Yeah. I, I miss having yeah. him inside the UFC, but yeah, uh, I, I could see the argument here for Hooper. I don't feel the most comfortable with Kolaris, and you nailed it on the head in terms of the man's a reckless striker and the man's a reckless fighter at times, and that could cause possibly bite him in the ass here as well. So looking forward to seeing how that plays out. All right. <clears throat> Let's move on to the next right here. We got a bantamweight fight between Jonathan Martinez and Vince Morales. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 220 for Martinez and plus 185 to return on Vince Morales. Now, one thing to always look out for with Jonathan Martinez is how he looks on the scale, right? He has missed weight a couple times. Uh, I just want to confirm here the last time he missed weight. Uh, I believe it was the, yeah, it was the, no, not the Thomas Almeida fight. Uh, yeah, the uh, Frankie Science fight. So it's been, you know, uh, close to two years now since the last time he missed weight. He came in at 140.5 for a 135 pound fight that night. Uh, the last time around, he did fight at featherweight against Alejandro Perez, weighed in at 144 pounds. So keep your eyes on the scales tomorrow morning when he comes back down to 135 pounds. But even when he does miss weight, the guy still goes out there and gives us the performance that we usually see from him, right? Volume-based striking. Throws in combinations, uses his kicks very well, uses his range pretty well, unless your name is Davey Grant and you can finally find that knockout blow later in a fight. But, you know, you can look at his losses and be like, okay, we can give him a pass. The first of which, short notice against Andre Sukumtad in his UFC debut. I know Sukumtad doesn't really have the greatest perception about him amongst the MMA fans, especially that gaffe that he had against Sean O'Malley back in the day. But, you know, we'll cut him, uh, Martinez some slack there. UFC jitters, whatever you want to say. The next loss, Andre Ewell, probably one of the worst split decision robberies we've ever seen in the UFC. That was horrible. He should have won that fight. And then obviously getting flatlined by David Grant after lighting him up, you know, for the better part of that fight. 
uh, even almost nearly finishing Davy Grant in that first round. He ends up getting clipped in that second round and then put out. But Martinez, I think, is one of those like like reliable. I feel like is too too much of a uh, you know a, a big term to use on him. I do think he is a safe-ish fighter, as long as he has a legitimate striking advantage over his opponents. And that's exactly what I think he has over Vince Morales in this spot. I don't think that Vince Morales is this new and rejuvenated fighter after knocking out Louis Smolka in his last fight. Like, th that happens. That's a flash-in-the-pan kind of thing. And I know it was the first time Louis Smolka had ever been knocked out in his UFC career. Just got knocked out this past weekend against Davy Grant, right? Maybe it's a... It's a... It's a teaser of things to come for Louis Smoka's career, especially considering how much damage that guy's eaten over his career to begin with. Maybe it's starting to catch up with him at this point in time. Vince Morales normally allows his opponents to kind of dictate the pace. You know what I mean? The, the, there's been several fights now where you can look back and be like, he just let that fight slip through his fingers. And I feel like Martinez is a guy that he can allow that to happen to as well. Dr Draco Rodriguez, like that's a perfect example of a fight where it didn't look like Vince Morales had any urgency to get anything going in that fight. I felt he deserved to lose, or sorry, he did lose the, the Benito Lopez fight. I don't think he had much urgency in that fight either. Sorry, I got it confused. It was the Benito Lopez fight. He did win the Draco Rodriguez fight but still quite underwhelming fight that night. Benito Lopez, not a good look for him either. Uh, the Amon Zahavi fight, very close as well. Felt like he should have lost that one as well. Here with Jonathan Martinez, he's dealing with a guy who's going to be throwing you know, upwards of 100 significant strikes here. Is he going to be able to match that? I just don't think so. Not to mention, let's add in the fact that uh, Jonathan Martinez shares a stable with the last one of the last guys to defeat Vince Morales, Chris Gutierrez. And if you guys remember that fight, very big uh, emphasis on the leg kicks, especially the calf kick from Chris Gutierrez. Now, I don't think that uh, Jonathan Martinez is going to go out there and adapt the Chris Gutierrez style and just chase that calf kick because I'm sure Vince Morales would have a, a perfect counter for that at this time. But I'm looking forward to the chess match in here in terms of Vince Morales potentially looking to counter a leg kicking game and Jonathan Martinez looking for a counter to that counter game. You know what I mean, I think that's where it's pretty much going to play out to be. Uh, as long as Morales doesn't catch him with this crazy shot and as Morales doesn't have this crazy knockout power that he's now tapped into, I think Martinez cruises in this fight. And I think we see him, you know, look like that minus 220 that he's going to be at, maybe even look minus 300, minus 400 once this fight is set and done. I like Martinez by decision. That seems to be the way he normally wins his fights, puts up the output keeps the pressure on his opponents, maintains the distance, uses his kicks to maintain that distance as well, and just cruise the full 15 minutes here. So give me Martinez by decision, plus 115. I think that's a good spot. And I honestly don't mind the chalk on him at all. Vince Morales is not a great fighter in my opinion, and I don't think that knockout power is something that's going to continue. I think it's a flash in the pan, and it's not going to work out for him moving forward. So give me Martinez, Martinez by decision. What about yourself? Am I am I jacking off Martinez too much here? Or do you think that he has what it takes to beat Morales? Yeah, I think he has what it takes to beat Morales. I don't think you're jacking off Martinez too much as much as you're doing what I normally do and underselling Morales a little bit. So I, I largely agree with all your points. I don't think he's the prettiest fighter. I don't think he's exceptionally good in any one department of mixed martial arts. I literally think he's middling at absolute best. But you know what, man? Gotta give the guy a pass eventually. Let's just look at his record. So his UFC debut is in Song Yudong, who ends up going to be top 10 guy in the division and it's close it's competitive i mean he get outstruck i think by like one significant strike in the fight so tough debut against a very talented guy you give him a pass there he beats Aben zahabi well was a i don't know it was a really shit fight zahabi didn't throw anything and morales is low output you did an excellent job of nailing that in your breakdown he doesn't really throw a whole lot he just happened to throw more than zahabi 
who decided to just stare at him that night. But still, a quality victory. The Benito Lopez fight. MMA Decisions has 11 media members uh, score that fight. All 11 score it for Morales. Four of those guys scored it 30-27 for Morales. He didn't lose that Benito Lopez fight. He got his leg kicked off all night, but he should have won that Benito Oh, yeah, fight. yeah. That was the, the pretty much his boxing versus the kicks of Lopez the entire fight. Yeah, and now I'm recalling that. And, and then this is what leads to a lot of what you're saying as well, which is all the shit I agree with, is that the Benito Lopez fight, he got uh, kicked 39 significant uh, leg strikes, right, from Lopez landing. So his leg was on display the entire time, and it hobbles him up. The next fight against Chris Gutierrez, Gutierrez is a leg kick specialist. So he just chews off his lead leg and TKOs him in the second round, right? Draco Rodriguez didn't throw leg kicks. I landed 10, I think. Louis Smolka, I don't even know if he can throw leg kicks, right? Those guys couldn't exploit him. But what does Jamar do best? Kick from the outside. Kick all night. Volume and kicks. And in theory, a guy like Morales is low volume and susceptible to kicks. So Jamar's style should just eat him up. But what concerns me is, again, when you look at Morales, is he should have won the Lopez fight. And then his losses are to Chris Gutierrez and, so and Song Yudong. Two, like, upper division guys. Fair. His losses, you know, or his wins, not even terrible. Eamon Zahabi, Louis Smolka. First guy to ever knock out Louis Smolka till. Davy Grant decided to repeat the feat. Uh, you had the Grant by knockout. I had Grant by decision. <laughs> well, there's what, two minutes left? Dude, I, 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 I was sweating that under two and a half. I'll yeah. tell you that. <laughs> yeah, dude. But you know what? You're right. When you're right, you're right. So you take him how you can get him. Yeah. I think the main thing, though, is that Vince Morales is going to come forward. He's got an excellent chin. He's going to be there for 15 minutes. He's going to load up on the right hand. He's going to touch and go in some spots. And with Martinez, as much as I really do like him, He's winning the Davy Grant fight, and then he gets dropped, knocked out. Shame. All good. I load up on this guy against Alejandro Perez. He's winning pretty much all of the fight until these little moments where he'd get clipped, generally with 10 seconds left. In the first round, he outstrikes him like 21 to 9, 22 to 9, more than doubles him up. 10-second clapper. He goes to throw like a knee. He's on one foot. Perez clips him over the top. He falls down, right? Not even like a clean knockdown, but it is a knockdown. Two of the three judges gave that round for Perez on the knockdown, right? Second round, he's eating up Perez, playing the distance game, staying to the outside, this and that. Easy to do, by the way, because Alejandro Perez is five foot six with a 67-inch reach. So it's a very effective against him. 10-second clapper, Perez rushes him, beats him up again. Third round, a little clear for, for Jamar, but I, I think somebody that can make it a rugged fight, step in the pocket and crack him, like, I don't know. I'm not fully sold on his chin. Whether he doesn't have a good chin, or like you mentioned, he has trouble making 135 pounds, probably a little bit of both. But I'm not like super trustworthy on his chin. And with Morales, I think that people just undersell him because he just doesn't have a very much appeal within the division, within the sport for that matter, right? So I don't know that I love that money line. I agree that Martinez should win. I agree Martinez by decision, and the price looks pretty good on it. But I've been burned by uh, Morales a few times, and I, I just don't know that uh, I would want to top ticket Jonathan Martinez this week. But uh, in terms of prediction, you are going with Martinez, is that correct? Martinez by decision, yeah. Martinez decision. All right. That's plus 115 for anybody interested in that. And then on the flip side as well for Morales, if you do think he gets a knockout here, you'd be looking at plus 500 for him to knock out Jonathan Martinez. Not a bad hedge either if you do end up betting uh, some money on Jonathan Martinez. I, right. I thought I thought a decent hedge would be just the fight goes the distance, but it's like minus 240. So there's just yeah. no meat on the bone left on it at that point. There you go. All right, let's move on to the next fight. Very much looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this one. We got Omar Morales coming in at minus 140 uh, and plus 120 on the underdog, Urosh Medic. Now, Medic is coming off his uh, first ever career loss last time around where he dropped a fight to Jalen Turner uh, and he showed off, you know, what I've been kind of 
preaching the entire time, even way back uh, against uh, uh, Alan Cruz in his UFC debut. The guy's a glass cannon. The guy goes out there and he, you know, tries to put the pressure on his opponents, tries to get the knockout, really tries to, uh, you know, break his opponents. And if he's not able to, then he starts to fall behind. And that's where guys are going to be able to start to take advantage. Now, that was his first ever loss to Jalen Turner. But I just saw things in the Alaska FC scene that he was he was dealing with, right? He didn't really have the greatest jiu-jitsu game either. It seemed like he really struggled on the mat there, but was still able to beat these bums in Alaska FC, right? If you're fading Alaska FC, you're up a million dollars probably at this point in time. But uh, now with him taking steps up in competition and fighting legitimate guys, uh, we're going to start to see him start to fall more and more. Omar Morales, I believe he's 35 years old at this point in time, and he's coming off his first ever uh, finish, uh, a loss via finish, I, I should say, to Jonathan Pierce. Uh, as long as his durability is still, you know, up to par, he should be able to deal with the early onslaught here from Uro Schmedic and really start to put it on him later in this fight and potentially get him out of there by the second round, maybe even early third round. I'm I love violence in this fight, right? There's certain guys in the UFC on that roster where I'm like, oh, violence. Louis Smolka is one of those guys. Whether it's him going out there and getting the finish or getting finished, you know, it just cashed last week by by a hair. We should say that. But Uro Schmedic is another guy where I'm like violence right either he goes out there and starches guys like he did against alan cruz in his ufc debut or he goes out there tries to starch doesn't starch and gets starched himself by jalen turner and ends up uh, cashing that under two and a half ticket that's where i'm leaning on again for this week morales medic under two and a half minus 160 one of these guys is getting the finish either morales is finally over the hill now age is finally catching up to him now durability is catching up to him and he's gonna he's gonna get finished by medic early or Medic throws everything he has early here, doesn't get it, get the job done, and then Morales just methodically picks away at him and then eventually finds that opening to put him away. I'm going Morales. Morales by KO. I, I believe that's sitting around plus 200. But in terms of covering both angles here, I don't see this fight reaching the scorecards, honestly. So under two and a half, fight doesn't go to decision. That's where most of my money is going to be laid on for this fight. Let me know what you think, man. What are your thoughts here? Yeah, man, I hear you. I hear you. And I actually like that Morales by knockout prop. I know people would say, it's, oh, man, Morales just hasn't looked like a power puncher in a few years now. Last time he knocked anybody out was 2019. It's three years ago. Listen, it's all the same sentiments that people had about Michael Johnson, right? Michael yeah. Johnson hadn't knocked anybody out since 2016. The facts are he's a hellacious power puncher, and things just weren't really lining up. But eventually they are going to. He's capable of going out there and doing it. And against a guy like Alan Patrick, that's his time to shine. I would say the same thing with Morales. He is heavy-handed. He just, what, what are you going to knock out Giga Chikots? All right. Good luck with that. Calvin Cater hit him 400 times. I uh, I don't know. I don't know if you plan on going and knocking out Giga Chikots, right? And then beyond that, like, Jonathan Pierce is a top talent. Shane Young, I, maybe the Shane Young fight, I guess. But here's my biggest takeaway for Omar Morales. He's 36 years old, okay? So by no means is this guy a prospect when he makes his UFC debut. He fights on the Contender Series. He knocks out Harvey Park. It's a big KO victory. He debuts against um, the small stun gun, Dung Young Kim, the other one, Dung Young Ma. And, uh, <laughs> little he, Dong. Yeah, Little Dong. He drops Little Dong, but he does not get the KO victory, which is a shame because most people that fight Dung Young Ma do get the KO victory. Then he fights Gabriel Benitez, wins that fight. Probably, you know, his best performance in the octagon as far as I'm concerned. Probably best performance in his career as far as I'm concerned. And this is all at 155. Dude fights at 155 pounds. He's undefeated. He's in his mid-30s. He fights out of Sanford at 155. Why he dropped down to fight Giga Chikata at 145, I don't know. But I'll tell you something. He came into that fight as a nearly 2-1 to one favorite over Giga Chikata. And he looked like shit from the time the bell started until 
the last round. He got dropped twice, looked awful, hurt to the body every time, no energy, always a low output guy, relied a little too much on his power, but wasn't even letting his hands go. You chalk it up to him fighting Giga, but in hindsight, I think it's the cut to 45. The Shane Young fight looks better, not great, at 145. The Jonathan Pierce fight, again, lethargic, out of it, at 145. This is him going back to lightweight. This is him return to 155 pounds. And again, I think that extra weight, that uh, not having to kill yourself in the sauna, should give him a little bit of extra power, should give him a little bit of extra energy, and all that's good. Durability checks out, because we're going to need him to survive the early onslaught by Euromedic, but homie took the early onslaught by Giga. Homie took a 15-minute beating from Giga. And by the way, it wasn't Giga taking his time. Giga kicked his ass. But I think he's durable enough. He's never been knocked out. He did get choked out by Jonathan Pierce, but of course, Pierce an excellent grappler and just a total grinder. I don't think Mendes is going to do that. Mendes has never fought past, I think, 650 of a fight. His entire career. He's made to the second round. But it was like a minute 50 into the second round. That's the longest he's been. He generally goes out there, finishes you early, or I think he's going to start to tire and fatigue. And I love watching amateur MMA. Uh, in person, right? The best thing to watch oh, yeah. live, right? Because <laughs> because pro MMA, they tend to take a little more time. They're seasoned. They're veterans. They've learned a thing or two. There's a feeling out process. They're trying to figure out the distance and the timing and the rhythm. Amateur MMA? Nope. You just go for the kill right away. So you'll see guys that are 7-0, 8-0, largely with first-round finishes, second-round finishes. They look awesome. They go and they test somebody who's going to stand in front of them and fight back. And that's when they falter. These guys that come out of Alaska, Alaska and FC, it's the same thing, right? They're fighting guys that are 0 and 1, 1 and 2. You know, even the guys that are 5 and 0, because Mench has beaten a few guys that had a 5 and 0 record. They're 5 and 0 because they were also fighting <laughs> yeah. dudes who just came off a fucking salmon fishing boat, right? <laughs> you think this guy's trained? Been the goddamn Atlantic for the last three months. All I'm saying is they learn they learn the same way amateurs do that, oh, this works. So they just bum rush opponents. And he's at King's MMA now. It's not like he's still in Anchorage by any means, but his style is his style. It, it's what he brings to the table. Now I'm willing to give him a pass in the Jalen Turner fight because Jalen Turner looks good these days. Like he, this guy could be a potential contender down the road. Uh, but all the same, it's 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 still his style. He comes at you hard, the fight hits the ground, he's got limited grappling. His striking is a little bit wild, a little bit reckless. Of course, it could land. Uh, but more often than not, I think Omar Morales, Omar Morales throws a nice, sharp one-two, and he's got an excellent leg kick game. I think he survives his first round, pays dividends by just putting in that work, chewing up the lead leg, eventually has him mobile, lands that one-two, the two being the right hand right to the chin, knock him out. So I got Morales, Morales by knockout. I like the price on it. You can get it between plus 185 to plus 210 in some spots. Let's just settle it at plus 190, plus 200. Uh, it's still good enough range. Again, not something he's done lately, but it's all about opponent and style matchup. And this is the one that seems to be most likely for him to get that KO victory. So that's what I'm playing. Solid hedges, if you do like the Medic side, is uh, Medic in round one plus 550 or Medic in round one via KO plus 700. So not a, not a bad way to approach it. Under two and a half is what I like. Cody obviously likes Morales, especially Morales by KO as well. Violence is what we're expecting for this fight, and I can't wait for uh, for that to go down. All right, let's move on to the next fight. We're looking at Jailton Almeida going up to heavyweight, taking on my guy, Parker Porter, minus 600 on the Brazilian, plus 450 on Parker Porter. From what I'm hearing, there's nobody that wants to fight Jilton Almeida at 205 pounds. And I get it, right? It's the conundrum that uh, Armand Srukin had for a long time is, you know, he's a beast, but he's an unranked beast. 
So it's a lose-lose situation for anybody in that, you know, top 15, top 20 area to be like, hey, okay, I'll take this guy. Because if they beat him, they beat an unranked guy. If they lose, they lose to an unranked guy. And more than likely, they lose their ranking or they lose their spot where they're at. Parker Porter's over here like, hey, fuck it. Let's go. You know what I mean? I just want to stay active. I'm coming off two straight wins here. Josh Parisian, Chase, uh, Chase Sherman. Let me go out there and stop Alan the hate train. <laughs> Alan, sorry, yeah, three-fight winning streak. I apologize. Alan Bado. And, <laughs> and uh, he wants to go out there and take the hype of Jilton Almeida. I don't, I don't really get it. You know, I mean, I, I was hoping that Parker would stay at uh, heavyweight, maybe even give us the fight of the century we've all been waiting for him against Jake Collier. Like, why not? Like it would have been the perfect time for them to do it, but he accepts the challenge. I'm assuming he's either going to get a new contract or get rewarded for, uh, you know, getting some brownie points with the UFC for at least keeping Jalen uh, Jilton Almeida. Um, uh, active, but it's tough to see how he deals with the power of Jailton early here. Now, I'm a guy that slightly faded Jailton in his UFC debut, thinking that Danilo Marquez had what it take to wrap him up, get him to the ground, and do what Danilo Marquez does, and that's just control guys with how big he is and with his jiu-jitsu skill set, but Jailton was having none of that. He was able to dispatch of uh, Danilo Marquez pretty early and easily in that fight. Here, you know, I find it interesting that his, that his KO line is sitting at where it is. It's Right now, it's sitting at plus 350. So they believe that he's actually going to go out there and try to submit Parker Porter because the submission prop currently sits at minus 145. I'm seeing minus 110 at a couple of spots as well. But I would I would assume that he's going to go for the knockout, right? Sure, uh, uh, he went out there and dealt with heavy hitters like Josh Parisian, Alan Baudot, and, and Chase Hooper. Those guys are heavy hitters. They have a plethora of knockout finishes on their record as well. But the difference between those guys and guys like Chris Dacus, who obviously knocked out Parker Porter in his UFC debut, and Jilton Almeida, is the explosiveness and the speed is much different than what he was dealing with with those other big, plodding, slow heavyweights with big power. And I think that's where we're going to see uh, Parker Porter struggle here. I think Jilton... You know, just just wrecks him here. I, I really think that he either gets this fight to the ground and ground and pounds him, or finds a big enough shot on the feet to put Parker Porter on his butt and ground and pound him here. I actually really like the Jelton by KO at plus three fifty. I think that's a a bit of a gift of a line here, considering uh, the durability issues I believe Parker truly has uh, against guys that are explosive and fast, like the like I said with Chris Dawkins and Jelton Almeida. The other spots that I look at uh, under. One and a half, minus 150. Uh, Almeida in round one, that's minus 105. So that's even money at this point in time. But even just taking him by KO, I think is the best way to go about it. If you want to put your tinfoil hat on, Parker Porter by decision at plus 1,200. You know what I mean? That seems to be the way that he could win this fight. Unless Jilton has an atrocious gas tank and Parker Porter is able to survive early and then just you know put it on him later in this fight and get him out of there. But he couldn't get Alan Baudot out of there. You know, I mean, that that's kind of is too much of a red flag for me to be backing Parker Porter in this spot. So no bet on this from the, the money line perspective, but I'll likely have some action on that KO line on Almeida, which, again, head scratcher for me as to why they think that uh, Almeida will be seeking a submission over a knockout here, especially over a guy who's been knocked out, you know, just uh, three, four fights ago by Chris Dawkins. Well, what's your assumption on that fight? And do you think that Parker Porter is actually a live dog in this spot? I actually think he probably is a live dog, considering that the money line is, I would say, a little too wide. They're heavyweights, and there's a lot of red flags here on Almeida. So, yeah, Parker Porter, if there's, if there's a weight class where that underdog can come through in a sloppy heavyweight-type fight, well, then you would think it's heavyweight. Parker Porter, again, some advantages. Let's just look over the stuff with Jailton Almeida that we don't like, because we can all agree 
we really do like this guy. He's got an excellent physique. He's got some ground skills. He's got big explosive power. Uh, he, you know, he looked great on the contender series against a tough Russian. It looks like he's got a very promising future at 205 pounds. Could be a potential world champion at 205 pounds. But him just moving up to heavyweight is the first red flag. Keep in mind his last two MMA fights, his last fight against Daniel Marquez, he weighed 203. The one before that against Nasruddin, Nasruddin off in the contender series, he also weighed 203. So uh, he's coming in well under the 205-pound limit. I don't know how big of a heavyweight he would be, but Parker Porter cuts down to 265. Parker Porter tips the scales at 260-plus pounds. So this is not just you know a light heavyweight versus a heavyweight. This is like a, a big heavyweight versus a guy at light heavyweight totally jacked, ripped up, big dude, physical dude, get it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's probably an easy 60 pound difference there, you know, 50, 60 pounds. So to me, that's that that's a little bit tad bit concerning. Here's the other thing that's concerning with Jelton Almeida, right? So all of his wins, first round, early in the second round, first round, first round, first round, first round, early in the second round, first round, first round, first round, first round, and a loss to Bruno Assis. That loss to Bruno Assis is the fight goes the distance, right? Because after a few rounds, his that explosiveness it kind of wears off. So how can you bank on a guy at six to one? And he's just going to smash Parker Porter so fast that the gas tank won't be an issue. If this thing goes a round or two, gas tank very well could be an issue. And when Parker Porter, for a big guy, he throws heat, man. Like the Chase Sherman fight and the, the Josh Parisian fight, he lands over 100 significant strikes in both of them, which is impressive for a heavyweight. So if the fight goes longer down the stretch, Parker Porter could make it greasy, right? The size difference could make it greasy. Here's another thing that's super interesting to me. After he wins his last MMA fight, he enters the grappling tournament in Brazil, Submission Circus 5. He beats the Sarcasio de Santos in the first by escape time. He loses to Hane Pessoa, but first round rear naked choke, 230 into the round. Very fast in a grappling match, by the way. Hane Pessoa is an MMA fighter, by the way. He fights at 185 pounds. He's a small little guy, right? And in fact, his last MMA loss against Bruno Assis, who has a loss to Aaron Jeffrey, at 185 pounds. These guys are middleweights. He's losing to those guys in their middleweights. Now he's going up to heavyweight to take on a dude that's 260 fucking pounds. A guy that can throw over 100 significant strikes. Like, it's greasy, man. This becomes greasy. And I'm getting burned a bunch because normally what I do is just put Almeida on my top ticket because he's 6-1 to one and he's fucking built like a G.I. Joe action figure. You could literally, you could literally go to the store, buy a block of cheese, grate it on the guy's abs. Like, he's ripped. <laughs> he's shredded. How come you wouldn't want this guy in your top ticket? But it's like, I don't know. I got a feeling that if this thing gets out of the first round, we're in trouble. Now, I love what you're saying. We'll get out of the first round. Okay, I like that. Okay, let's get all made of that quick victory, and we won't have to worry about it. But I'm almost thinking if this thing goes, and that first round ends, and they go to sit on a stool to get ready for a second, I think I'm pulling the chute and live bet and park reporter. Like, I, there's too many unknowns. And if we are questioning his cardio, because he's only fought – first or second rounds, is it not way more tiring throwing around a guy that's 260 pounds compared to a guy that's 205 pounds, right? He might exert himself throwing Parker Porter around, getting takedowns, smashing him up. If he tires himself out taking on the big boy, could be trouble. OSP did the same shit, right? Supposed to fight at 205, opponent pulls out. They're like, whoa, you want to fight Ben Rothwell? He's like, sure. Ben's not your typical heavyweight. He's 265 pounds. And what happens is, like, literally in the first round, OSP's trying to move him around in the clinch, gassed out, gassed out. So with Almeida, I think this guy's got such a bright future, and I want me some Almeida. It's just, again, I don't want to put a ton of faith and a ton of stock on him because I think that, the, like, the underdog 
would be there. So how do I improve this six to one? <sighs> I would think like you're saying, the under one and a half or the gel tunnel made by knockout, you know, just try to explode on him the way Chris Doukas did. Doukas, by the way, had to drop him twice in that round. Like, you yeah. know, Parker Porter took some nasty shots. It was finally a knee up the gut that finally put him away. But I would hope that Jailton just gets on him and gets on him quick because this is a fight that if it plays out 10 times, uh, you, you, you see the greasy side of it. Because it's just a one-time fight. He could smoke Parker Porter out of there, make it look easy. Oh yeah, there's 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 leagues to this. There's you know there's classes to this shit. But it's another fight that if they fought ten times, one of these is getting stretched out later, and I'm not fully confident he can do that yet because we haven't really seen it. So I know I'm probably talking in circles here at this point, but I, I do have Jelton Almeida, Jelton Almeida by knockout, like you said, under one and a half. But I, I think I'm going to try to limit myself to my action on this fight. Yeah, I could see that. And I looked into that Rene Pesola guy that you were talking about who just uh, subbed Jilton Almeida recently. He's one of those guys that has the giant jujitsu tattoo along his collarbone. <laughs> he's like, of course, <laughs> he's jujitsu is life for this guy. So uh, maybe not the Jose Quinones way about it, but... Uh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Quinones has got jujitsu tattooed on his chest. I'm, I don't even know if he's ever gone to a class. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's like a Brazilian thing. You know, if you yeah. don't have jujitsu or muitai tattooed on you, yep. are you even a pro fighter? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's pretty much their hazing to be truly recognized as a fighter. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. And we're looking at the prelim headliner, apparently. They could have easily done Park Reporter and Jilton Almeida as the prelim headliner, give Jilton a little extra shine. But nope, we're saving it for ugly man Joel Holmes taking on Alan Amadovsky. In terms of odds, we got minus 195 on Joseph Holmes and plus 165 on Alan Amadovsky. Now, the last time that we saw Alan Amadovsky inside the cage, he gave John Phillips his only UFC victory by fighting the fight that John Phillips needed to win. And that's trading bombs in the pocket. And then he gets knocked out in 14 seconds of that fight. That's the type of fighter you're getting with Alan Abadovsky. But can you blame him? You know what I mean? The majority of his wins coming by knockout. He was thinking that he probably had the bigger punching power in that fight and wanted to show it off. But... He paid for it. He was staring up at the lights after that fight. Uh, that uh, capped off a, a two-fight losing streak. Obviously, he started his UFC career with a, a decision loss to Christoph Jotko, where he got taken down over and over again by Jotko. And Jotko was able to accrue close to 10 minutes of control time in that fight. And we know Jotko. That's not his style, right? I believe Jotko was coming off a knockout loss before that, and he really wanted to play it safe as much as possible. And going up against a heavy hitter like Alan Amadovsky, that was the way that he thought he could secure the victory. And he did he didn't really face much resistance either because alan amadovsky not really that big of a, a middleweight either right the guy comes in i believe let me just put the number here 510 with the 74 inch reach just for a comparison joseph holmes 64 with the 80 inch reach so i'm looking forward to seeing what the the stare downs look like because it could look kind of comical considering how spy amadovsky is uh statistically compared to uh joseph holmes here uh, Joseph Holmes obviously losing his UFC debut to Jamie Pickett, uh, a fight where he pretty much just got outgrinded, right? Uh, Joseph Holmes is one of those guys that is used to being the grinder. He's not the one used to being grinded on, and uh, that's what Jamie Pickett was successful in doing with him. Uh, Joseph Holmes, more often than not, likes to go out there and use his physicality as his advantage over his opponents. He likes to take them to the ground. He likes to use his ground and pound, likes to seek submissions, but most of it comes with him just bullying his opponents with the size. And luckily for him, I feel like that's exactly what he can do here against Amadovsky. Take him to the ground, look to grind him out, 
but I do think that it's going to take him a little bit longer than, you know, getting him out of there in the first round like he's used to doing against his opponents. Uh, I think this goes into the second, maybe even leaks into the third, which is why in terms of props, the one that sticks out to me the most is the over one and a half at minus 140. I've seen a lot of people on the fight doesn't go to decision. I've seen people on the under one and a half fight doesn't start round three. But I do think that this is one of those fights where Holmes is going to want to show off that he's made improvements. One thing that he's really harping on himself for after that last fight is that he never wants to be the victim of a cardio dump again. And he wants to go out there and show off uh, that he's made improvements in his cardio. This is the perfect person for him to do it against. He's going to have a sizable strength advantage over this guy. And he'll likely have the grappling advantage. So if he's able to get this fight to the ground, from there he should be able to control top position. Maybe get some dominant positions. Do enough work to not get stood up. But not enough work to actually get a finish. Uh, that's kind of what I'm expecting from Joseph Holmes here. Obviously the the knockout on the Amadovsky, uh, Amadovsky side could be live. But at plus 275, plus 300, that's just not a, a big enough price tag for me to be like, mm, let me take a little bit of a sprinkle on that. So I'm going to go Joseph Holmes here. I do think he gets it done inside the distance, but I do think it happens a little bit later in this fight. So I'd be looking at round props of Holmes in round two at plus 500, Holmes in round three at plus 800. Uh, but I do like the over one and a half. It might get a little bit sweaty, but I do think if he comes in with the game plan I expect him to have, it will be a grinding type of game plan that will likely take us over the seven and a half minute mark. So uh, give me Joseph Holmes, Holmes later in this fight via a TKO or a submission. How do you see this one going down? Yeah, much, largely a lot of the same. Alan Umdovsky, you can, uh, you can theorize the same thing we talked about with Chase Hooper. It's like, hey, some time off. Maybe he got better. But Hooper is 22, you know. You can really see him getting better. Some of these other guys, time away, you can really see them getting better. Certain guys, I, I, you don't see it. Nalandovsky, 33 years old. I think he's outside of the prime of his career. He looked not even great, but when he was in Bellator, at least he'd come forward, slug it out with you, throw some heavy hands, get some knockouts. He's looked extremely ineffective in the UFC. Jotko likes to shoot takedowns, just generally doesn't actually get the takedowns. Except for when he was fighting Alandovsky, Polish Jordan Burroughs in the house in there, dude. And like once he took him down, there was no getting back up. It was actually... Uh, Really bad performance. And then, as you mentioned, you, you, you're, I'm okay. I'm fighting the most one dimensional fighter in the history of the game. What does he do well? Ah, they call him the white Mike Tyson, whatever. Don't stand in front of him. Okay, okay, yeah, cool. Stand right in front of him. Like, what could you possibly be thinking? But that's Alan Namdowski. So, three years off, like, is his ring IQ better or his skills sharper? I'm going to have to say pretty much no to most of those. But of course, it is a wild card because you, you don't know for sure. Now, with Joseph Holmes, Crazy enough, he makes his pro MMA debut in 2019, but his schedule's been crazy. He fought Jordan Newman, that's his debut. Jordan Newman, a collegiate wrestling standout, stud, undefeated Bellator prospect. Anyways, tough debut, kid. But then he fought twice that year, tw twice more in 2020. He fought four times in 2021, five times in 2021, including a Muay Thai fight. Like, Jesus. And, and I think that's where the burnout came from. So right before he gets on the Contender Series, he fights Dwayne Diggs, right? Looks good at LFA 114, gets a rear naked choke finish in the second. Seven weeks later, so less than two months later, he's on the Contender Series against Shantae Barnes. He looks flat in the first round, doesn't look good, looks a little lethargic. Second round, Barnes tires, Holmes takes over, gets the submission. He's a big favorite in that spot, doesn't get a contract. That's just seven weeks later. He, he signs up for another fight six weeks later against Jonathan Patty. Knocks out Patty in the first round and then makes his debut on short notice for Jamie Pickett. Pickett was supposed to fight K.O. Barlthow uh, that night. K.O.'s out. You got Joseph Holmes takes a fight on short notice. 
He's literally had three fights in the last three months at this point. Now that's tough. And for the record, he wins the first round against Jamie Pickett, and then he tires. Then he has that adrenaline dump. Bright lights, UFC debut, fourth fight in four months. Like, I think a lot of things would get to you. So I'm encouraged by the fact that he still lasted. He still went to 15 minutes. He showed some decent skills in the first round. I think he is maturing. He's not very deep in the way of experience quite yet. But going a hard 15 minutes against Pickett would be a good learning experience. I believe he's with James Krause now. So again, they're going to have this guy well-trained, in good shape, with a good game plan. You can see him putting it together. You touched on the fact that he's got a 6-inch reach advantage, a 6-inch height advantage. That stuff would probably mean more if it wasn't in the apex. But all the same, I think he'll be able to play to the outside. And he's decent enough in the clinch. Like, he'll throw knees. He's got the knee up the middle. I think he might just be able to catch Alan Dobbsky with something. So, curiously enough, the line for Holmes inside the distance is even money, right? But the prop on, I think, submission is like plus 230, and the knockout's plus 300. I'm leaning towards the knockout. I, I actually don't mind Alan, Do Alan Dobbsky yeah, yeah. to catch something and go down. And hopefully Joseph Holmes get that TKO victory. He shows two wins by TKO in his entire professional career. And then, funny enough, they're the two best guys he ever fought. Jonathan Paddy, who he knocked out in the first round. And this Ryan Leninger, who's won his last four fights since that fight, is another team Krause guy, 8-2 and two as a pro, probably going to be in the UFC in the somewhat near future. And, of course, he knocked him out with a knee up the middle in the first round. So... He only has the two knockout wins on his pro career, but they're the two best guys he fought. He knocked them out. And the other guys, he wears them down and gets the submission. Against Alan Dovsky, I think he knocks him out. If he does it, he wears him down. And instead of snatching up the submission, just TKOs him and puts him away. So uh, Holmes inside the distance seems uh, sensical, uh, but I think I'm going to go – sensible, sorry. But I'm going to go with Holmes by knockout plus 300 to try to get that, that little extra bit of juice. Yeah, obviously take it with a grain of salt, but talking to James Cross a little bit about Joseph Holmes, he's very excited for him to go out there and, you know, put on a better performance in his sophomore uh, walk to the cage here against uh, Mr. Alan Abadowski. So let's see if he can bring that to reality. All right. That does it for the prelims. Shout out to the 110 live viewers here. Feels like everybody's starting to realize that we are on the all-star full-time and we're starting to get the group of guys that were usually watching this show live, starting to watch it live once again. So shout out to all you guys for following us over here to the all-star. Make sure you guys hit them with a like and subscribe as well to let them know that the Propping You Up crew is for real and that you guys really appreciate us being on their channel. And the best thing you guys can do, Drop a comment as well. Let us know what your favorite prop is for this uh, upcoming card, and we can talk about it next week if fans of cashing or not as well. So please do show us some love in that aspect. Obviously, show some love as well to BetOnline, BetOnline.ag. Make sure you guys use the promo code that's in the description below. Just click that link, sign up with them. They'll give you a 50% match on up to 1K for your welcome bonus on your first deposit, and you want to sign up to BetOnline because... Uh, they're the if I'm not mistaken, they are the first bookie to drop odds on any fight. Uh, they drop the props first as well. They also drop uh, regional MMA betting as well. And we're still working on uh, getting Cody's uh, fight league on there as well, so we can maybe uh, bet on some of his fights that he's going to be putting together for June 25th out on uh, uh, Niagara Falls. For anybody that's in that area, make sure you guys go check it out. Well, what's it called again? Brawl, uh, brawl by the fall. What's it called, Cody? Yeah, well, if you're doing it by the falls, obviously Brawl at the Falls always comes to mind. But uh, yeah, it's a front row fight club, so their first event. Club. But yeah, yeah, it looks like it's going to be, a, a, well, hopefully, I mean, on the matchmaker. So I think it's going to be a good card. 
But yeah, yeah, if you're in the area, give me a shout. I'd love to meet you in person. Love to have you out at the fights. And then if we can set something up so that people who can attend the fight can, obviously, there'll be an internet stream you can watch the night of. But if you can bet on it, even better. There you guys go. All right. Uh, let's get to the main card here. First fight up, we're looking at Eric Anders taking on Jun Young Park in a middleweight contest. In terms of odds, we got minus 205 on the Korean fighter, plus 160 on Eric Anders. Now, I remember the hype behind Eric Anders after he started uh, or after he joined Fight Ready. I believe that was before his first fight against Darren Stewart. He looked like an absolute beast in that cage for the four minutes and 37 seconds that that fight took place. Unfortunately, lands an illegal knee. That fight ends up being a no contest. They end up running it back, and good God, is it one of the worst fights I've ever seen. We get you know a combined 14 minutes of control time, the majority of which was by Eric Anders there, and he wins that fight pretty much by holding Darren Stewart up against the cage. A very underwhelming fight, very underwhelming performance, but... He gets two paychecks that night. He still gets he gets still gets the W, and that's what matters at the end of the day. Next up, he goes up against Andre Munez, gets his arm snatched up, takes an L. Is there a fighter that is more inconsistent than Eric than Eric Anders? I, I really can't think of any guy other than maybe Michael Johnson, right? He's more Luke inconsistent Sanders. than anything. Luke Sanders, exactly. Guys that and funny enough, another Arizona guy, right? Like another guy out of that uh fight ready MMA lab area type of thing. But I'm looking forward to seeing what Eric Anders brings to the table here. Um, before we actually get into like breaking down this this fight and the nitty gritty of it, but talk about the mismanagement of Eric Anders starting off his UFC career. Starts off with two solid wins. Rafael Natal knocks him out in the first round, beats Marcos Perez by decision, and then gets thrown in a main event in Brazil against Lyoto motherfucking Machida. What are you doing, manager? What are you doing, UFC? You have a guy here that you want to bring on a little bit, not super slowly, right? Because he was a champion in LFA. He did beat Brendan Allen, if I'm not mistaken. So he has a good resume. But what are you thinking putting him up against Leota Machida at that point in time? I get it. He was the favorite that night. Very close fight. He probably should have deserved that decision. And it was, what, the 2018 version of uh, Leota Machida? Yeah, 2018 version of him still. But that's way too quick of a push, especially in hostile territory down in Brazil against a legend like Leota Machida. Not a good look, in my opinion. Since that fight, I believe he he's close to losing the Tim Williams fight until he head kicked him with like 20 seconds left in that third round. But since the Leota Machida fight, he's picked up a grand total of four UFC victories as well as five UFC losses. So he's four and five in his last nine fights. Not a good look. He's physically gifted, very much so, right? I believe he used to play football in college or something like that. Very physically gifted. But in terms of his actual skill set, a lot of it depends on his physical uh, abilities. It's him controlling his opponents, using his speed and his explosiveness and sometimes his strength to control his opponents or try to knock them out, get them to the ground. But like the finesse around his striking technique, it really isn't there. He seems a little stiff at times with his striking techniques as well. And I think that's just more so based on his physical stature. I don't think he'll ever be a, a fluid striker by any means. But he's making it work for him and still, you know, managing to scrape his way inside the UFC and, and stick around there with a 4-5 and five record over his last nine fights. This fight against Jun Park, close fight. I, I don't think that the odds are correct here. It's all minus 210, 205, whatever it is for Jun Park. Way too wide, in my opinion. I do think that Park is the better fighter, and I do think he deserves to be the favorite. He does a really good job in terms of his striking, meshing it with his grappling, meshing it with his jiu-jitsu, his clinch game, all that stuff. He does a very good job in terms of doing that and putting on a pace on his opponents, just as we saw in the Tafan and Chukwi fight. So I, I do like Park here. 
but I, I'm not sold that he should be this big of a favorite. The spots that I don't mind here, if I go as a decision, minus 180. I mean, I do think that both guys will likely be trying to grapple each other here. Uh, that will slow down the clock. That will slow down the pace of the fight. And I don't think it's really going to produce a finish. Park likes to be in entertaining fights, but given the strength, the disadvantage, he'll likely be here against uh, Eric Anders. I think he's going to look to you know, wear on Anders first and then try to pick it up the later that this fight goes. So the spot that I'm leaning on would be a park by decision at plus 100. Still, I wish it was closer to like plus 150, plus 200, but that would be my favorite prop outside of the fight goes to decision at minus 180. Um, yeah, give me park decision. What are you thinking here? Yeah, yeah, I got the same thing. Anders is just the biggest letdown. I mean, he's, he's so talented in terms of athleticism, and it seems like he's got some power, even though he never knocks anybody not named Vinicius Moreira out. Uh, he just he never really puts it together. Like this is a very big disappointment. And when he went to fight ready, I was one of those guys. I was like, this is what he needed, and he looked awesome against Darren Stewart. Awesome. And then just run it back because, hey, why not? Legal, uh, it was a no contest due to a, a, an illegal knee. But, hey, he was killing him. Let's just run this thing back. And he just stared at him the whole time. And then it was like, yeah, yeah. By the way, we got the win there. Everyone cashed the ticket. But I think uh, a lot of people, myself included, never again. Never want to do it with Eric Anders again. This is a whole career of him doing this. By the way, you talk about the Lyoto Machida fight. You know, why does manager put him in that spot? So he, he's, he's undefeated. He won a national title at the University of Alabama um, as a football player. You know, one of the team captains. Has like five teammates go to the NFL. He looks good. He's athletic. He's the LFA champ. He's undefeated. 2-0 in the UFC. Goes to Brazil. Minus 225 favorite against the legend in Brazil. And for the record, fan side, OC Weekly, all three guys from SureDog, Combat Press, MMA Uno, MMA Today, WrestlingObserver.com, MMA Sucka, fan side, Combat Press, The Ring, Bloody Elbow, Wrestling Observer, and MMABrazil.com all scored the fight for him. Paul Shaughnessy, who had money on Leota Machida, scored the fight for Anders. I, who had money on Anders, scored the fight for Leota Machida. And it was the real <laughs> big eye-opener. Yeah, no, because I, I, everyone else is like, oh, you got robbed. I didn't get robbed. I didn't get robbed. Eric Anders robbed himself. This is how the rounds unfold per the striking stats. In the first round, he landed two significant strikes. Eric Andrews did. Two. He was outstruck 15-2 to two in the first. He was outstruck 14-6 to six in the second. Outstruck 10-9 to nine in the third. 10-6 to six in the fourth. And 13-9 to nine in the fifth. He got outstruck in all five rounds. He never did nothing. He never landed more than 10 significant strikes in any one of the five rounds. So how did he win the fight? How do you figure he won the fight? Which he did it. And then that became the rest of his career, dude. He got, after that fight, he got outstruck by Tim Williams before he got saved by the kick. You mentioned that. You're 100% right. He's probably down two, knocks him out in the third. He got outstruck 132 against Santos. He got outstruck 92 to 65 against Elias. You were in the building. I was in the building. Everyone's cheering for Elias because he's Canadian and he's good looking. And when he got dropped, everyone was like, fuck yeah, Anders, put him away. And what did Anders do? Yeah, I'm just going to see how this one feels out. <laughs> like, what are you doing, dude? Pounce on him. You got a knockdown in a round that you're otherwise losing, in a fight you're otherwise losing, in enemy territory, no sense of urgency. Outstruck clean. Outstruck 79 to 16 against Khalil Roundtree. 72 to 64 against Gerald Mearshart. Who's Mearshart ever outstruck, by the way? Outstruck by Christoph Jotko. Outstruck by quite literally everybody. Now, the two Darren Stewart fights, he got the better of the striking on Stewart. But it was largely him pinning up his opponent up against the cage. There's no volume from him there. You're not seeing the power. You're not seeing the improvements. 
You're not seeing the ring IQ. Total letdown. And as I say that, Jung Young Park's probably going to try to brawl in the pocket with him and get clipped <laughs> by something. Like It's MMA. It's a crazy sport. The Iron Turtle's not invincible anymore because you saw him fight a bonehead, um, real bonehead game plan against Rod uh, Rodriguez his last time out. But I think he's got just superior volume, superior pace, and I think he'll probably learn his lesson a little bit here. It was just like, don't rush the kill. Like You've got Rodriguez hurt. He's stunned. He's a little bit tired himself. Just like, wait. Don't rush the opportunity. Let it open itself up. Against Anders, I don't think he's going to knock him out. Anders has got some pretty good durability, to be honest with you. But I think he's just going to be able to out-volume him, push him backwards, keep his back up against the cage, and hopefully win the decision. So uh, I, I got Park winning a decision here. There we go. There we go. Let's see if the fight-ready guys can actually turn Eric Anders around, especially after that last loss. But I'm I glad that means Physical, yeah. he's yeah. got it all. What can yeah. he do, right? But yeah. even the Muniz fight, I remember talking to some people, and they were like, Muniz can't wrestle for the record. And Anders is a big brick wall of a guy. And it's like, yeah, that's a fair point. But here's the thing. Eric Anders will just end up on the ground because it's Eric Anders. He just always ends up in the worst position possible. You know, he'll stand in front of Tiago Santos. He'll go to the ground with Andre Muniz. There's no re rhyme or reason. He's just like a guy that's shitting a lot of apple pies, right? Yeah. So uh, uh, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me six times? Nah, nah. <laughs> I can't, can't go down that road again, right? There you go. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're talking about a women's strawweight fight between Pollyanna Vienna and Tabitha Ricci. Minus 135 on Tabitha Ricci, plus 115 on Pollyanna Vienna. Uh, very interesting fight here, right? We got two black belts, uh, Pollyanna Vienna on a two-fight winning streak. Both of those coming via first-round submission, the first of which over Emily Shitmeyer, as my guy uh, Cody Safdick likes to say, and uh, the second coming over Mallory Martin. Uh, Martin willingly taking Pollyanna Vienna to the ground, or at least it seemed like she was looking for a takedown and Vienna just pulled guard and she goes, okay, you're in my domain now. And she ends up getting the submission there. Now she's going up against Tabitha Ricci, who's coming off a victory of her own over Maria Oliveira. That was a fight she was able to win by decision, grounding the fight when she needed to, getting some good top time and getting some good uh, ground and pound off to get that decision victory. Before that, she made a short notice debut up a weight class against a much bigger and much more vicious Manuel Fierro. She was not able to last the majority of that fight. She ends up getting finished three minutes into the second round. Now, this fight, I feel like it's a great stylistic matchup for her, but I'm kind of scratching my head at the amount of people that seem confident on the Poliana Vienna side. A lot of guys that I respect that are quite heavy on the Poliana Vienna side. Vienna is very solid jiu-jitsu. Don't get me wrong. Uh, as you can see, just going through a record, she likes to work off of her back, and she really likes to you know, throw up submissions, throw up arm bars, throw up triangles. But I, she's going up against a legitimate black belt here in Tabitha Ricci, who I feel will do good enough in terms of staying out of those bad positions. Uh, people want to go and look at you know her jujitsu matches and see you know the times that she's been tapped over there and say, oh, that's going to have an effect on how this one goes down. But you know th the one thing you can't do in jujitsu that you can do at MMA is punch. And I feel like Tabitha Ricci will likely, uh, you know, start to punch down on on Poliana Vienna if she ever tries to, you know, throw up uh, submissions or arm bars or anything like that. Uh, be able to get out of those positions, maybe even get into half guard. Um, but I expect this fight to play out on the map for the most part because that's where both of these women more often than not look to take their fights. I do think that Tabitha Ricci uh, trusts her jiu-jitsu to stay safe against Poliana Vienna, and why shouldn't she, right? There's girls in the past who have been able to survive on the ground against Vienna. Like, I feel like when people are breaking down Vienna's jiu-jitsu, they make her sound like she's Ryan Hall or like this crazy jiu-jitsu wizard that no matter what, as soon as you end up on the ground with her, you're going to get submitted. She's going up against a legitimate black belt here in Tabitha Ricci. So uh, in terms of the striking, it, it seems like 
Vienna isn't the most comfortable on the feet, but she throws crisp shots down the middle with the intentions of either trying to knock you down or, you know, get a knockout of her own as she did against uh, uh, Amanda Kibos on the regional scene. But I think that Ricci with her movement should be able to evade those big shots, get her own striking off. But I think it's just a matter of time either before Poliana Vienna pulls guard or Tabitha Ricci goes for a takedown and, get, and is successful with it. I think she'll do a good enough job in terms of staying safe on top, landing her ground and pound, and grinding this fight out over the majority of 15 minutes. So over two and a half, minus 160. I like that. Fight goes to decision, minus 135. I like that. And Tabitha Ricci via decision, plus 180. I like that as well. Am I am I off here? What, what are your thoughts on this fight? No, I totally agree. I really do. Uh, the, the thing with MMA, and I guess in any sport in general, right, it's all about that recency bias, right? It's all about what have you done for me lately. Now, I'll never forget this. Pauliana Vienna is billed as a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion. She's not just good at Jiu-Jitsu. She's a world champion. She's got excellent Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So she fights J.J. Aldrich, and she gets a takedown, spends about a minute on top, and then J.J. Aldrich sweeps and just gets back up. So I was like, huh. Oh, that was interesting. How did J.J. Aldridge just get up that easily, right? Then right. J.J. Aldridge proceeds to spend six minutes on top of Vienna. Vienna had nothing off of her back. No jiu-jitsu. No submission attempts. Nothing. She got handedly outgrappled by J.J. Aldridge. The very next fight against Hannah Cyphers. She cannot get Hannah Cyphers to the ground. She gets muscled around and beat up by Hannah Cyphers. Knocked down, I believe, and loses a, a close enough split decision. Really bad look. Very bad look indeed. The very next fight, she takes on Veronica Macedo. Veronica Macedo is a karate fighter who is undersized for the division and has not submitted anybody. And she got submitted in a minute and three seconds. Armbar from guard. So I'm a part of the internet community. The internet is just shitting on her. Fake black belt. Give up your black belt. You're not a real <laughs> black belt. This girl's never done jiu-jitsu. What a fraud. Fraud, fraud, fraud. Lost three fights in a row. Just got submitted by Macedo. Got out grappled by J.J. Aldridge. Fraud, fraud, fraud. Fraud, fraud. Gets Emily Schittmeyer and armbars her from guard. Okay. All right. Well, I guess that's not really unexpected. You know, armbars in women's MMA typically happen. Low-level low move. Typically it does happen. But to submit Emily Whitmire, that's not very impressive. And then she submits Mallory Martin, which I'm going to go ahead and classify in the in the category of not very impressive. And then it's like, her PJJ is legit. Like, like have people forgotten? Have we gotten have we gotten from she can't grapple to she's an excellent world class grappler because of a couple wins over Emily Whitmire and Mallory Martin? Is that where we're at? Because I don't know for sure. Like I think she likes playing off of her back, but that's not a good place to be, especially in this day and age in the UFC. You don't want to be on your back for a prolonged period of time. Tabitha Ricci went out there, scored five takedowns in her last fight, looked way more comfortable. I'm not even going to talk about the Menno Fioro fight because she took the fight on short notice, up a weight class against an absolute killer so i'll give you a pass there down in her natural weight class 115 she looked a lot stronger physically got the takedowns striking looked improved everything looked improved other than her gas tank didn't look all that good she definitely fatigued after the first round won the first two tired in the third not the greatest look but i think this is a young fighter not a ton of pro mma experience she's going to get more comfortable she's going to get better now again she's a competition black belt she knows definitely how to defend submissions, and she's got the better wrestling game. So if she goes and takes down Vienna, sets up shop on top, and just defends the armbar and the triangle attempts coming her way, which I think she should be able to, she's just going to accrue a lot of top control time. As far as the stand-up goes, you know, maybe it's even both sides, but I can't say it's a real advantage for Vienna. In fact, I give it a slight lean towards Ricci, but it, the wrestling and the takedowns should play towards Ricci. So I think you're only going to see her 
get more comfortable and get better and get more experience as time goes on in the UFC. And with Vienna, like I, I seen it, uh, I, I don't expect to see much change there. And um, I don't know, like it's a, it's a fun little battle. It's a fun little scrap, but I, I think I got to go with who's going to be on top. Who's got the better wrestling. So give me the BB shark, uh, Tabitha Ricci. There we go. That that's the confidence that I need to inject on the Ricci side here because I am legitimately surprised at the amount of love that Pollyanna Vienna is getting this week. But we'll see how it goes down when they actually. Uh, last yeah. week I was surprised with the amount of love that Frank Camacho was getting, and then I found myself yeah. thinking, "Well, okay, he does look like he's in really good shape, and you know what? I mean, he can't be stupid enough to just stand in front of this guy." But but he is. But he is. That's the thing. <laughs> is that like you? <laughs> People can have a great lean and they make yeah. great points and it's definitely true, but sometimes you just got to bite down and be like, what, what do I feel, right? Camacho, I don't know, whatever. I did to myself, right? You yeah. listen to people because you respect people's opinions. It's good to share thoughts. It's good to do all that jazz. But at the end of the day, like sometimes you've got a feeling the guy's washed. The last three times you've watched him fight, he looked washed. He gets knocked out by Justin Janes and you swore never again. But his Instagram looks pretty good right now. <laughs> and this guy's dropping three units. Like, ah, oh, shit. Why did you I see do? the abs on this man? Like, shit. <laughs> I know, I know. And, and then he just fights the world's worst game plan. Like, what, yeah. what can you do? And the yeah. same thing with, like, Rakic, uh, the knee injury, that that yeah. you can't Freak. foresee coming. Yep. But when he goes and says, that actually happened three weeks ago in training, it's like, ah, oh, man, you can't foresee that shit. You can never <laughs> right. account for that stuff. Never. Like the, the whole yeah. Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather fight, right? Like apparently he had a shoulder injury, a shoulder injury going into that pack or uh, the, the Mayweather fight. And who's, who's to know, how are you supposed to, able, or how are you supposed to cap that? There's no way to cap that. So it comes with the game. It comes with combat sports. That's what we're setting up for whenever we put our hard earned money down on these fighters. All right. Let's move on to the next right here. We got a middleweight scrap between Chidi Ejikawani coming in as a minus 230 favorite. He's going up against Dushko Todorovic coming in as a plus 190 underdog. Very interesting fight here, Cody, because Dushko Todorovic used to be the bell of the ball for a lot of people, right? They, you know, he was the guy usually with the chalk on his name. But after suffering two uh, losses now to uh, Puna Hale Soriano and Gregory Rodriguez, he did obviously pick up that victory over Mackie Patolo. People seem to be a little bit cold on this guy now. They're like, you know what? Let's look at the new hot thing on the block, and that's Chidi Njokwani, who's coming off a 16-second knockout over our fellow Canadian, Marc-Andre Barrio. But he was a slight underdog going into that fight. So what does 16 seconds show us that he's going to be able to go out there and do the same thing to Todorovic? Now, I get it. Todorovic, striking defense is a little sketchy, right? That guy keeps his chin up there. He can get dinged. He's talk I believe he's going to have a four- to six-inch reach disadvantage here as well, so that might help Chidi Njokwani in terms of getting from point A to point B, which is going to be his chin. So that obviously scares me in this position. But the reason that I backed Marc-Andre Barrio against Chidi Njokwani is something that Dusko Todorovic is really good at doing. And that's mixing it up in the cage against the cage with the wall install tactic, right? Push him, pushing his opponents up against the cage, getting some dirty boxing in there, getting some knees in there, and really just roughing them up um, I'm up in that spot using his strength uh, mainly to just keep his opponents pinned up against the cage. Um, he tried doing it against Gregory Rodriguez. Didn't work out. Rodriguez turned out to be the much stronger opponent there. He even mixed in a couple trips uh, and, and some throws to get Todorovic onto the ground. But when you look back at Chidi's career, like that seems to be where he struggles most when guys are able to engage with him in the clinch or in the grappling. Now he's losing to high-ish level guys in the Bellator scene, right? 
Rafael Carvalho, Andre Koreshkov. Those are just some of the names that are able to use their grappling against him. If Dusko looks to go out there and utilize his grappling and is able to get in on Chidi and Jaquani, push him up against the cage, he could have massive success in this fight. But it's just that striking defense is just not trustworthy enough because his durability, you know, it's a little bit of a question mark. Got absolutely starched by Puna Alder Soriano. Chidi Anjaquani may not be as big of a power puncher as Puna, but he sure has that speed and, and explosiveness to get from his chin to your chin very quickly and put your lights out. So that's kind of my concern here. No way in hell am I paying minus 230 on Chidi Anjaquani. I would rather take his KO prop here, which is likely his best path to victory. We're looking at plus 125 uh, on him to knock out Dushko here. Because if this goes the full 15 minutes and he doesn't knock out Dushko, I see it being as one of those fights where Dushko is able to push him up against the cage and overpower him, use his grappling, and, and use his strength up against the cage to nullify the power and movement of Chidi. Not to mention smaller cage, right? So that obviously favors the grappler here and the guy looking to tie up his opponent. I think that's something that Dushko can do. He's been very successful with it in the past, and he has still looked to be utilizing that sort of game plan, even in his last couple of fights, even the Gregory Rodriguez loss that he took. So I'm going out on a limb here. I'm going to take Dushko here as the big dog, uh, but taking him by decision at plus 480. I've even, I'm even seeing plus 500. I think he nullifies Chidi's uh, range striking game by tying him up, pushing him up against the cage, and getting that control time, getting that dirty boxing in, and that should be able to. Uh, that should be enough for him to get his hand raised by decision in this spot. If you're looking at Chidi, Chidi by KO, I feel like is the the only way you can really play him. Right, minus two thirty on a guy whose main win condition is knockout. Like that seems a little bit too crazy for me. And of course. The chin is going to be on display for Todorovic to get hit, but I'm interested to see how he might look to adjust his game, maybe put an emphasis on his striking defense, maybe roll with the shots a little bit better so that he doesn't get knocked out, so that he can close the distance, get in on Chidi, and uh, get to work with the dirty boxing and the clinching work. So give me Dushko, plus 500 via decision. Now tell me why I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think Chidi just made a lot of improvements. Like back yeah. in the day, I wasn't very fond of him because he was kind of one-dimensional. Of course, him and his brother Anthony and Jaquani are just excellent with their Muay Thai striking, but his grappling's not very good, and his cardio's not very good, and he's just kind of a bit of a letdown, busted prospect. But spent a lot of time working on his grappling specifically, and recently just got awarded his BJJ black belt. Now, whereas I would normally think, oh, whatever, Chidi's got a black belt, ha, ha, ha. You saw him in the contending series against Mario Souza. His cardio looked career best. His grappling looked career best. Looked like this guy's going to be a problem, right? He's tying it together. And then, of course, with Barrio, it's not just he clipped Barrio and he knocked Mar Marcel or Mark Andre Barrio out. Barrio never been knocked out in his entire career, right? I mean, he is durable. He's fought as high as 205 pounds and has fought in some heavy hitters. To knock him out is impressive. To knock him out in 16 seconds is very impressive. Chidi also fought to a draw one time against Simon Marcus in a Muay Thai fight. Like his his striking is top notch. It's that his wrestling and his cardio grappling that was always his his kryptonite. I think now that he's shored up those elements of his game, it's going to allow him to allow, let those strikes go, not be as worried about getting taken down, not be as worried about you know tiring out. And I think it should just allow him to flow a little bit better. <clears throat> he's got seven pro losses, so it's like oh well he's kind of washed, right? But look at the losses: Rafael Carvalho, former world champion; John Salter former world title challenger, Andre Korshkov, former world champion. All the three losses prior to that, which were 10 years ago, Jeremy Kimball made it to the UFC later on, Brandon Thatch made it to the UFC later on, and actually knocked out George uh, George St. Pierre with a head kick in a training fight one time. <sighs> Faraz was pissed about that. George Lopez, 
made to the UFC, and Warren Thompson, which is one of the highly decorated uh, American Muay Thai fighters of the last decade. So quite literally, all of his losses are some notable opponent, right? And especially the last three being to Bellator's best of the best, really. I can kind of feel for him a little bit, right? He's gone through lots of experience. He's had ups, he's had downs. His wins are super impressive, man. He's got wins over Max Griffin. He's got a win over Andre Fialo in just 21 seconds. He's got a win over, uh, of course, that Mako win over Barrio his last time out. Uh, Hisaki Kato, the guy that beat Joe Schilling twice. Melvin Gillard, who was fat and washed at the time, but all the same. He's actually beaten a good level. He's lost to a very high level. He just never really found his footing. And now three-fight winning streak, finally found that maturity, uh, finally been spending a lot of time on his grappling. Cardio seems to be good. I really think like he's coming into his own. The way that Dusko fights, his head way up in the air, doesn't move it from side to side, and comes straight at you. He's a defensive liability. If he can get you to the ground, great. If not, he's going to get knocked out standing. Now, this is a pattern of the last three fights, really, because Daquan Townsend's not going to do anything, right? So you throw that one out the window and just... Actually, this one's super interesting. You know Teddy Ash, right? Our boy oh, yeah. Teddy Ash that's, from Alberta. That's the, that's, yeah, that's, that's a fight that I've kind of like... I feel like we'll have an impact on this one. How we how we dealt in that fight? He just held Teddy Ash against the cage. Yeah. Lots of cage control. Teddy Ash outstruck him 109 to 102. Right? He outstruck him a, and he landed 109 significant strikes. Teddy Ash, the middleweight who fights at 85. I think he's retired now. Local Alberta guy. You know, tough old Unified champ. You know, back when Unified was just you know lowly Canadian MMA. Now it's the best Canadian MMA. But. Uh, he got hit a lot. That's your first red flag. But Daquan's not going to do anything about it, so you get the pass there. Quenahale dropped him twice. He Everything he threw landed flush. Everything he threw wobbled him, and he, he puts him away pretty easily. It was like, damn, the kid's got to work on that. Against Gregory Rodriguez, he just got bombed on, man. Everything landed. Everything hit him clean. He got no offense going. He got, Of course, he got taken down three times. And then that last one with Mackie Patolo, he is very soundly getting beat up standing. And then Mackie does a bonehead decision and decides to uh, engage in some grappling, and then Deuce goes able to take over. But at no point in his last three fights to me has his striking really looked all that good. He's super hittable. He's a dead money target, and a guy with power is going to capitalize. I would think Chidi is going to capitalize. If for whatever reason Deuce goes able to get him up against the cage, a regular guy, Sure, grind him up against the cage. Not the case of Chidi. Chidi's got such a nasty Muay Thai background that his clinch game is all knees and elbows. You don't want to clinch up with him for a prolonged period of time. He's going to slash you up. If you do get him to the ground, well, he does have a black belt now, so at least he's not a total fish out of water. And normally I would say just drown him. Dusko's got good cardio. Take this guy deep and drown him in some deeper waters. It looks to me like Chidi has maybe improved that aspect of his game as well. So I think he's, I think he's dangerous. If you weren't going to pull the trigger straight up on Chidi inside the distance or Chidi by knockout, whatever the case may be, I like the under one and a half. I think Chidi either does catch him and knock him out in the first round or Deuce goes able to somehow walk through the fire, not get burned, get a hold of him, rip him to the ground, and then at that point put a pace on him. And I think both scenarios are under one and a half. At plus 130, it's a good-looking price tag. I do expect violence in this fight. I'm just thinking Chidi, Chidi Bang Bang is the one that's going to get the job done. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it, right? Like, uh, there's somebody in the comment section saying, I hate Chidi. I don't hate Chidi. And there's only ever been two fights that I've ever broken down him for, for him for you guys, including this one. I picked against him twice. Yes, not saying I always pick against him. It's only been two times that I've ever had to break down his fights. I just think they're, they've both been 
stylistically bad matchups for him, but we'll see if he's able to answer the call. He did it last time against our guy, Mark Andre. Let's see if he can do it here against Dusko Todorovic. All right, let us move on to the co-main event here. Big fight here at 170 pounds. We got the veteran Santiago Ponzinibbio taking on the streaking Michelle Pereira. In terms of odds, we got Pereira as a slight favorite at minus 125, plus 105 the return here on Santiago Ponzinibbio. I was a little bit bewildered that Michelle Pereira was actually the, the slight favorite in this spot. Now, I get it, Ponzinibbio, you know, the three fights he's had since coming back from that close to, you know, career-ending infection or whatever he was dealing with hasn't looked the greatest, right? He, he got knocked out by Li Jingliang in his uh, return fight. Let's chalk that up to ring rust and just getting comfortable back in the cage. Goes out there, wins his next fight against Miguel Baeza after getting, you know, pretty much touched up for the majority of that first round, digs deep and gets into that veteran skill set and then takes out uh, Miguel Baez in rounds two and three. Then the next fight against Jeff uh, Neal, very close fight there, loses a split decision. But I think people continue to, not continue to, but are starting to underrate uh, Jeff Neal again, right? Remember when Jeff Neal was the shit main event slot against Wonderboy Thompson? If I'm not mistaken, he was a slight favorite in that spot as well. Loses that fight now. People are, are hopping off the Jeff Neal train. But very competitive fighter still and still has the, the skill sets to be a top 10 guy, in my opinion. Jeff Neal, that is. So close competitive fight for Santiago Ponzinibbio. Now he's going up against Michelle Pereira, you know, who's still flashy to a certain extent, but really showing his growth inside the game. As fights go deeper into the rounds, he starts looking for the grappling. He starts looking to take guys down and tries to grind them out, you know, where his gas tank may not be the best later in rounds. But I feel like with Santiago Ponzinibbio, he's going to be dealing with the guy who's putting numbers on him, who's going to be attacking that lead leg and really trying to nullify the, the jumping and the spinning and the crazy attacks of Michel Pereira. And really putting uh, or making it difficult for Pereira to use one of his best advantages in his fights, which is usually his speed. He's very quick in terms of, you know, throwing up head kicks or even just throwing his shots, blitzing attacks, all that stuff. He He's very fast, and that's why he's able to get to the target a lot faster than his opponents. But... You know, Pons, he has those question marks around him. Uh, again, not looking the greatest since coming back from that infection. He's getting up there in age. I believe he's 35 years old at this point in time. But I feel like if his durability holds up, he should be able to put together a solid game plan here by outpointing Michel Pereira, beating up that lead leg, using his combinations, and really stalking Pereira for the majority of this fight. I think that the only way Pereira really wins this fight is if he knocks him out. Yeah, I mean, Pereira by knockout, plus 300. Otherwise, I think Ponzinibbio just chips away at him. Pons has a great gas tank to go the full 15 minutes if he needs to. And I think that his takedown defense will hold up here against Pereira, who's, in my opinion, not the greatest takedown guy, but he's been taking advantage of guys who weren't really expecting him to go out there and grapple. Chaos Williams, Nico Price, uh, most importantly, right? I lean with the pawns here. I do believe he is on a decline, but I still believe he is the better fighter in this matchup. I think he touches up Pereira for the majority of 15 minutes, goes the distance, is minus 150. Ponzinibbio, by decision, is currently sitting at plus 215. I'm very close to pulling the trigger on Ponzinibbio here, but I've seen some love on Pereira, so I'm looking forward to seeing if that line on Ponzinibbio starts to widen closer to fight time. But uh, yeah, sign me up for the veteran here at underdog odds, especially via decision. Am I am I too high on Pons here, or what do you see? Yeah, honestly, I think the lines maker's got us right. It's a 50-50 fight. Like I, I can see it both going both ways for sure. And I don't really have a strong lean on it. Ponzinibbio, he has the volume, so in theory, he should go out there and just put up the superior numbers. He's an excellent striker. He's got hand speed. He's kind of got it all. As you mentioned, he's got 15-minute cardio. 
or three round cardio, perfect, all good stuff. I look at the decline though. The decline is important to me because his last couple fights before Neil Magny, Mike Perry, uh, yeah. Gunnar Nelson, he eye poked him, so I won't give him too much credit for that one. <laughs> but uh, the guy's looking as good as any. You know, he's a top five contender. And then the infection, and then the layoff, and then he's a little bit older. You come back and you get knocked out by Jing Liang Li. The Miguel Beza fight, the first round, he looked awful. He is getting teed off on by Beza. And then, you know, Beza's got this thing where after the first round, he tends to get real tired, right? So it became a bit of a, you know, a wild, reckless fight after that. Santiago Ponzinibbio does an excellent job of taking that fight over and winning it. But he was in a really close competitive fight with Miguel Beza. It took a lot of damage in that fight, I thought. And then, of course, his last fight with Jeff Neal. The frustrating thing here, if you were a Ponzinibbio backer, is that he may have won the first round, he won the second round, and then he uh, got uh, he definitely lost the third, especially with that big combo near the end of it. But at the same time, the first round's super close. How do you score the first round? And two of the judges <clears throat> decide to go with Jeff Neal because it all comes down to impact. When Jeff Neal lands, it's a it, it's a big impactful shot. That's what they decide to side on, not volume. Volume is Santiago Ponzinibbio's side. It was who's landing the bigger shots. And to me, I think that's going to be the same case against Pereira. He's going to probably land the volume. He's probably going to land a couple leg kicks, you know, a couple jabs, try to find his range. But when Pereira explodes, he explodes with that one big shot. It's the more impactful, most meaningful shot. And I feel like the judges might might be inclined to go with that. I mean, it's in the apex. It's small. It's a small cage. It's got the acoustics. Everything's going to sound a lot bigger. And with Pereira, yes, he is capable of exploding, but he's been fighting a lot smarter lately. He can fight 15 minutes. He can grapple if he needs to. He can throw crazy stuff if he needs to. He can settle back on his jab if he needs to. I, I, I could see both guys winning the fight. I really could. I just got a feeling that more often than not, we're going to bank up some rounds here. Because even though Ponzinibbio can knock out anybody in the division, and Pereira can knock out anybody in the planet, it just feels like they're going to respect each other a lot. And Pereira's been fighting really smart lately. Part of that is he respects his opponents now. He did in that one time. You know, Tristan Connolly, I'm just going to run around at this guy and act like a goof. But as soon as it didn't work, it's like, I need to figure things out. You know, the illegal knee against Diego Sanchez. Geez, maybe I got a little too emotionally involved in that. Now he's fighting a lot more patient. I think that patience is going to allow him to stay to the outside for the most part. You know, it land the big shots, step in the pocket when he needs to, do something flashy when he needs to, maybe try to mix in a takedown if he needs to. But I just, I don't have a whole lot of confidence on this fight, to be honest with you. And, and then when you talk about overs, minus 310 for the over one and a half, minus 185 for the over two and a half. I've never seen these guys' bodies of work. Like the props don't look good on this fight. The money line is 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 accurate, but it's a closely contested fight. I can't say for sure one side or the other. I would load up on Ponzinibbio if I thought he was Ponzi of old. He just seems like he's a little bit washed, maybe a little bit over the hill, and that would be a bad spot to be in against Prayer, who's not young by no means. He just seems, you know, a lot fresher, more dynamic, less damage, less mileage, right? So. Talking with you, you're, you're persuading me to go upon Zanibio, but for right now, I'm just leaning towards a pass altogether. And regardless of the uh, decision, it's going to be low on the list of priorities. Considering that Pereira has 40 professional MMA fights, you would think he's getting up there in age. The guy's only 28, which kind of surprised me. I was like, yeah, oh, that's man. right. He's super young. And and, yeah, and was training out of Michigan. Like, I don't know how the yeah. hell he got to Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> guy's, uh, guy's got a crazy story. Even the Tristan Connolly fight, he's like, yeah, I didn't have a coach. He showed up with no coach. Like, who does yeah. that? Like, anyways, exactly. the guy's a character, but if he fights smart, I think he could pull it off. Um, sure. He made a lot of good points on Ponzinibbio, though.
Yeah. All right. Uh, that brings us to our main event. Shout out to the 130 live viewers that we currently have. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe for the All-Stars. Show them that you guys appreciate us propping you guys up on a weekly basis. And make sure you guys drop a comment as well with your favorite prop for this card. And we'll see if it ends up hitting next week. Um, and also shout out to Bet Online as well. Make sure you guys sign up with them with the link below in the description. Uh, they'll match your initial deposit up to 50%, up to $1,000, I should say, actually. Uh, they are probably one of the best uh, sports books on the market, uh, strictly due to them dropping odds first, having great props for you guys to bet on, and not to mention having regional MMA for you guys to bet on as well. I'm sure since there's no UFC next week, there will be something on Bet Online that you guys will be able to bet on next week. Make sure you guys check them out in the description below and shout out to club as well and we got a bunch of props that they put up for the show uh that we'll get on to the back end after we get through our three best props but first let's tackle the main event cody main event 135 pounds women's bantamweight fight holly holm the ever veteran holly holm coming in as a minus 250 favorite plus 200 the return on ketlin vieta in her second spot in a main event for the ufc very intriguing fight and it looks like we lost cody real quick there I'll, I'll get it back in here as soon as he hops back in here. But goddamn, that was hilarious how I started that. So uh, I'll kick off the breakdown as I always do. Uh, Holly Holm, probably one of the best 25-minute fighters, right? She does a very good job in terms of asserting her dominance with her striking and her movement. And we got my guy Cody back, thank God. But uh, yeah, uh, Holly Holm, probably one of the best to do it over 25 minutes, right? We saw it perfectly in the Irene Aldana fight, uh, which was her last one. I believe that was October of 2020. Uh, so it's been a while since we've seen Holly Holm inside the cage. But in that fight specifically, we saw her stay on her bicycle for the majority of that fight. I would love to get the statistic on how much uh, distance she traveled in that fight because she was moving every second of that fight but found the opportune moments in terms of closing the distance and uh, uh, letting her strikes go, getting a good you know two, three, four punch combination followed by a kickoff and then getting back out into space before Irene Aldana could any get anything off. And not just that, she mixed in some takedowns and had some very good success in terms of controlling Aldana on the ground. Uh, there was one judge that actually scored round three, a 10-8 for Holly Holm because of the damage she was able to do from on top uh, in that round. So we're seeing an evolution in Holly Holmes's game as well. She knows that like the reflexes and all that stuff are going to start to slow down at this age. So let's start to use our strength more, just as she did in the Raquel Pennington fight. A very boring fight where she just held her up against the cage for the majority of that 15 minutes. Then the uh, Irene Aldana fight. She used her reflexes to a certain extent but knew that okay at a certain point i'm gonna have to mix in takedowns i'm gonna have to mix in the clinch and try to overpower this woman now you know I, if i'm not mistaken she's one of the most tested if not the most tested usada athlete on the on the roster but she's got the greatest doctor in the world right now because we, we it's no secret like she must be on some sort of chemical or substance that's allowing her to continue to perform at this high level and have this physique at 40 years old and she goes out there and shows she hasn't really lost a step. I think that Ketlin Vera is really very much going to struggle in this fight. She's going to be throwing at air a lot in this fight. I think she'll have like a 20 to 25% success rate in terms of her significant strikes because the vast majority of her success comes when she's able to engage with her opponent in the pocket. Holly Holm's not going to be there to engage in the pocket. She's going to be on her bicycle and she'll land those strikes, get back out, or even mix in a couple of takedowns if she needs to. I believe it was round three or round four against Misha Tate for Vieta where I saw the 
exact game plan where I think that Holly Holm is going to use. Mix in a little bit of that clinch work up against the cage. Try to go for takedowns. If you're unsuccessful in terms of doing that, stay on your bicycle and just close the pocket every now and then, landing your shots and getting back out before Vieta can get anything off. So I think we see Holly Holm of old in this spot. I, I don't even mean the pun there, even though she's 40 years old here. I do still think that we see her go out there and put on a, a pretty damn good performance here. I think the only way Vieta wins this fight, knockout, right? And she doesn't really have that many knockouts to her record, which is why we're getting Vieta by knockout at plus 1,100 now. So, yeah, if Holly Holm has lost a step, she'll probably eat a big shot from Vieta and go down. Uh, that would be the best hedge. Otherwise... Give me a Holly Holm by decision at minus 115. Like, that's the best way to play it, in my opinion. She could potentially pull out her patented head kick here in case Vieta gets a little bit too aggressive, gets sloppy, and gets countered with the head kick and gets knocked out. That is absolutely a possibility. Plus 450 on Holly Holm to win by knockout. But I think based on how things have been going, based on this stage of her career, she wants to play it as safe as possible. Get her shots in. Get out. Don't overcommit on anything too much. Maybe land a takedown or two if you need to. Use your strength against Catlin Vieira and just grind this fight out over 25 minutes. Last thing I'll say about this, and I'll flip it on over to Cody. I get we're in the smaller cage compared to what they were fighting at Fight Island for Aldana. But I still do think that she'll have more than enough space to just circle as much as she needs to in this cage and get off her shots as best as possible. So uh, Holly Holm, Holly Holm decision, minus 250 is accurate. Might even be a slight steal after this fight is actually over with. But uh, as I named my podcast earlier this week, I think Holly Holm hands out a veteran lesson this weekend against Ketlin Vieira. So give me a Holm decision, minus 115. Cody, what do you got here? Yeah, I think this small cage usually matters a lot more when it's like Parker Porter and you know Jolto Almeida. They're very large. Could be able to get a hold of them. Women, 135 pound fighters, like there's going to be a lot of space to operate and work with. And Holly Holm can move as good as any of them. So I agree with pretty much all your points. I think she stays to the outside. She chips way at her. You know, is it going to be a vintage performance from Holly Holm? She's got 38 pro boxing matches. This is her 20th pro MMA fight. She's 40 years old and she's fought all of the best for like two decades and yet she looks as good as she ever has i made the joke to paul yesterday she's the preacher's daughter like what was this preacher making a deal with man the devil like don't let my daughter ever grow old make a timeless <laughs> i sell my soul i don't know what the deal the preacher had but his daughter just keeps fucking getting better dude 40 years old the last fight with all donna 154 significant strikes landed five takedowns five round cardio for days You'd always see her and John Jones, like back in the classic, like yeah. the golden era vintage days. And she's just like built like a racehorse. And this guy's built like a racehorse. These are these are world-class premier talents. Then you'd see them again. And John's wrapped up around a telephone pole. And Holly's in excellent shape still. And John's sniffing cocaine. And Holly's in excellent shape still. This girl is such a consummate pro. She's never let herself get out of shape. She's just always improved her skills. And similar to a Caitlin Chikagian, where they start off very one-dimensional with the striking, kickboxing, good movement, all this and that. You see them earn BJJ black belts. You see them work on their wrestling. Now it's just extra you know, skills that you can bring into the octagon, different things that you can try to rely on if you need to. Holly Holm seems as well-rounded as any. So the way she matches up with Ketlin Vieira is good. Stay to the outside. Chip away at her. Use your speed. Use your kicks. Use your range. If the fight does end up in the clinch, you're going to be okay there. If the fight does hit the ground, you're going to be okay there. And you do not see this very often. You honestly don't. Not unless they're total putzes. Definitely not in fighters at headline cards. Kellen Vieira lands three strikes per minute. And she absorbs four strikes per minute. She, it, it, it's a negative differential. She got outstruck by Kelly Fasholtz 
44 to 13 and won a split decision. She got outstruck by Sarah McMahon. She got outstruck handedly by Kazingano. She got outstruck by Irene Aldana. She got outstruck by Sindra Eubanks. She got outstruck 47 to 7 by Yannis Kunikea. And she got outstruck by Misha Tate. In nine fights, how many has she had? Three, six. In eight UFC fights, she's been outstruck in seven of them. She gets outstruck all the time. Her striking's not good. I will admit, it was impressive that she put up over 100 against Tate and that she actually fought five rounds her last time against Tate. But Tate broke her nose like early in yeah. the fight and then just seemed so hesitant to really commit to anything. Whereas I don't think Holm's going to have that issue. I think she's just a very much, much, much more refined, cleaner, smoother striker than Misha Tate is. She, she is able to you know, dictate the range a lot better. Her rhythm's a lot better. Her timing and her speed are a lot better. Like she's just a much more adequate striker than Misha Tate. So if this fight largely spends uh, its time on the feet, then I think she's going to be okay. So I, I got home. The real question, though, is I was dead set on home by decision, right? I like home by decision. And then talking to Paul yesterday, he brings up some excellent points. And then you're bringing up a lot of the same ones where you know, that head kick could be on display. She could tire her out. If there are levels to this and she just spends three or four rounds chipping away at her, the kill shot will eventually open itself up. And whereas I like decision, that extra two rounds could be a, a big factor. Now, I know you like your Gracie round four, round five props. Holly Holm in like the fourth or fifth round. I mean, they both pay a really wow. large price. Plus 2,500 round four, plus 3,000 round five. Ooh, yeah, like, you know what? Drag her into deep waters and punch yeah. her in the face, man. It's Damn, definitely I might live have to, do to it. happen. Definitely yeah. live. Yeah, no, it, it's possible. I do think that Vera might have a little bit of a cardio issue, which is why I kind of leaned on Misha Tate in the last fight because I thought that as the fight wore on, that Tate would be able to start landing takedowns. But man, like you said, she got her nose busted up early in that fight and seemed hesitant for the majority of it. Now you're fighting Holly Holm and you're going to be whiffing at air for the majority of that. And what's more tiring than whiffing at air? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're just going to be whiffing at air the entire time with Holly Holm running circles around you. That head kick could present itself later in this fight. So yeah, I might have to sprinkle those round props as well i'm glad that you reminded me of those i thought they were going to be closer to like plus 1200 plus 1300 but good god plus 2500 oh. plus 3000 take my money guys take my money uh shout out to burgundy bets here throwing the fan duel uh prop here round four or five decision minus 145 for a holly home i don't mind that you know what i mean if she does finish here, it will likely come later in this fight as Vieira starts to slow down i could see that but i do think it's ultimately going to come via decision all right let us get to our three prop bets. And there is actually a special prop for the Holly Holm fight presented by CloudBet, which we'll get into after the three uh, best props. So let's get into that first. Let me just add that to the screen here as soon as I... Oh, did we lose Cody? There he is. Okay, there <laughs> oh, we go. Did my thing jitter that again? <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, first up for me, we're going to go with... Uh, Jonathan Martinez via decision plus 115. I think he stays away from the quote unquote power of Vince Morales and then pretty pretty much pieces him up, lands over 100, maybe 120 significant strikes over 15 minutes, wins that fight via decision. Next up, I'm going Vince Mor or sorry, uh, uh, Omar Morales and Urosh Medic under two and a half at minus 160. I'm expecting early violence there, whether it's Medic putting out Morales and the durability issues of Morales have completely caught up with him or Morales survives the early onslaught eventually gets him out of there maybe late first round maybe second round but I think we're going to see violence regardless and then lastly just as we spoke about I'm going to go a Holly Holm via decision minus 115 
what 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 did they say last week, Cody? Uh, Catlin Chukagan, death taxes, and Chukagan by decision. We can pretty much say that about Holly Holm as well. But I did, I, as we said, that late finish could be live in the spot. But I do like her via decision, as that is historically the way she gets the job done. All right, Cody, your turn. Okay, kicking it off, we're going to go with Elise Reed by decision. I know you disagree with this one, but I think similar to a Holly Holm, she's just going to fight a poor woman's Holly Holm version game plan. Stay to the outside, chip away with the kicks, You use the range, uh, play the distance, and then chip away. So I think that it's going to be live to happen against Sam Hughes, who's a little bit susceptible to just marching forward and not cutting off her opponents properly. So hoping for the best there. Reed by decision, plus 105. Got to get a little juicier here. So we're going to move to Kwani versus Todorovic, under one and a half at plus 130. I mean, honestly, the way Njikwani can line a guy up and knock him out, I think that he's going to probably be live for that first-round knockout against Todorovic. His head's way up in the air. He's susceptible to getting hit. He's a defensive liability. All these things. We know he doesn't move his head. He'll be live to get hit in the, knock in the first round. But the guy honestly does put a pace on people. And if for whatever reason, Anthony or sorry, Chidi Njikwani goes for broke in that first round and can't make it happen, I think the tide could start to turn in Todorovic's favor and uh, regardless, Todorovic either you know survives early and finishes, uh, or Chidi and Jaquani is going to catch him. I'm hoping for the former, not the latter. Chidi just sorry, the latter, not the former. Chidi just catches him and puts him away. But regardless, under one and a half on both sides seems good to me. And then capping it off, we're going to Omar Morales by knockout plus one ninety. As you mentioned in your breakdown, you got Morales and Medic on the under two and a half. You just think it's going to be violence one way or another. Someone's going to get knocked out. I agree. I just think Omar Morales has shown great durability at this point. Never been knocked out. You haven't seen his gun power in a while, but I think this is a good fight. Return to 155 pounds for him to put it all together. So, I mean, little saying of mine is, is if, if it comes from Alaska FC, it ain't for me. And I think Euro Medish is going to uh, eventually take the fall here. So sign me up for some Omar Morales plus 190 by knockout. I like it. I like it. All right, let's move on to the cloud bet special props that they got posted for us this week. Uh, as I said, as... Uh, as it pertains to the main event, they got a pretty good one here with Holly Holm, and you can bet on how many significant strikes she's actually going to land in this fight. Now, they don't just go with the, you know, over under 100 significant strikes. They give you guys, like, legitimate spots here. So under 64 strikes plus 350, 65 to 90 strikes plus 375, 91 to 115 is plus 325, and over 116 is plus 150. Cody, which one would you lean on there? 116 and over. I mean, I think you saw Misha yeah. Tate land 122 her last time out. Five rounds definitely matters. And with Holly Holm, she just landed 154 against Irene Aldana. Seeing as Irene Aldana is actually a, a fairly re well-regarded professional, not professional boxer, but you know, a good boxer, good striker within the division. I think Holm is an output fighter. Vieira is someone who absorbs more strikes than she lands herself. Taylor made for over 116 and a plus 150. I like that line. I like it. Uh, total completed rounds for all 11 fights. We got over under 22 and a half rounds. I'm leaning on the over as I do think that we'll see more decisions on this uh, fight card than anything. Uh, what do you think here? Over under two, 22 and a half rounds total for the full fight card. I think I'm thinking over, but by quick math, let's say you got five out of the main event, three out of the co-main, that's eight, one out of the cheaty, nine, Tabitha Ricci, Paulo Viana is probably going to go three, you got 12, Park and Anders is probably going to go three, you got 15. Joseph Holmes, let's say it's a first rounder, 16. Almeida, if he got first round, 17. Morales in the first round, 18. 20, 21. Uh, yeah, yeah, over. If Reed, if Reed, Hooper, and Martinez all go to decision, I think those three will. Then, uh, yeah, I, I would say the overall rounds. 
I like that as well. Total takedowns. Now, last week it was 24 and a half. Uh, now they're giving us 22 and a half. I do lean with the under here. I don't think that we'll get as many takedowns. Uh, I do think that we'll hit closer to the 18 to 20 range. Uh, do you have a lean on this one at all? No, last week when we did our little breakdown, it was like some of these had the potential to be four, oh. five, six, ten takedown oh, yeah. fights, and they weren't because he got submitted in like 30 seconds. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Uh, yeah. This fight, I think it's a lot. It's a lot different. You got a lot of striker versus striker, Reed versus Hughes, striker versus striker, Martinez Morales, strikers, right? Uh, Omar Morales versus Medich, strikers. Holmes versus Alandovsky, likely going to be strikers. Anders versus Park, strikers. Chidi versus Dusko, could be a takedown here or there, strikers. Santiago Ponzinibbio, Michelle Pereira, Holly Holm, really hard to take her down. So I would say under for takedowns for sure. And it's it's a higher number than it was last week, and it's like I don't know, way way more striking affairs. So. Yeah, I, I actually don't mind the under on that one. I like that as well. Uh, who will record the fastest finish on the entire card? I'm going to go with, uh, you got to go with Jilton Almeida, right? Plus 800 on him to take out Parker Porter in that first round. I'm just trying to quickly look over the rest of it. Other possible contenders would obviously be Orosh Medich, as that is normally his path to victory as a first round finish. That's plus 1,500. Uh, I, I think I'm going to go with Jelton here. What about yourself? Listen, it's not like they call him cheaty, cheaty, pow, pow. Cheaty, bang, bang. I think he goes out there and clips Dusko, puts him away. That head is just way up in the air. Yeah. So uh, hopefully Cheaty's able to go out there and pull it off. Plus 1,300 for him to win on the entire card. Uh, and then if you're just looking at main card uh, and you take Chitty and Jaquani, you're getting plus 450. I guess I'd have to go with Chitty as well there. So if you guys want to play these props, make sure you guys check out CloudBet. Link is in the description below they are the first crypto uh currency sports book in the world uh if you do not have access to them you can have access to them if you know what i mean so figure out your ways you guys can get onto them shout out to cloud bet for supporting the show and obviously shout out to uh bet online as well links to both of those bookies are in the description below show them some love and let them know that we sent you by using those links and again appreciate the 120 live viewers that we currently still have with us on the back end of this show uh cody once again i'll give you the platform here for anything you want to say on the back end and then i'll wrap this thing up no honestly like uh i just haven't really been active on twitter lately i got a zillion other things going on my intention is to definitely get back at it and get back to business and hopefully get the right the ship and go back but I, I do like once in a while we'll see something on my phone i see it in the comment sections some people hit me up but like this you guys are a good group of people man like the support's been there you have a couple bad weeks i think people are understandable people understand that there's a lot of variables to the game and like everyone's been nothing but short of supportive so normally i would say Oh, check me out on Twitter at CJ Safdick. Like, I can't guarantee that I would reply as I normally would. Just do have a lot of things on my plate, but it's not like lack of confidence. Like, I'm not feeling down on myself, and I think part of that is uh, the reception's been awesome. So, again, Paul told me there's a couple people shitting on me online, and I would expect that too. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. But uh, I haven't seen it myself, but it must yeah, be just I mean, better people that are following, you know, who haven't been with you when you've been hitting those big parlays or hitting those three, four liners or something like that, right? Like it's this is the gambling game, Cody. We know this. People are emotional with their money and they don't know how to manage their bankroll properly, all that type of shit. Those are the ones that are going to come out there and hate you because you've been around the game for years and years and years wearing so many different hats and you know this game way better than almost anybody in this game. So they should know that, and eventually it's going to pay off for them. But, yeah, I don't see any of they hate myself. I don't know what Paul is talking about, but I'm sure there are people that are bitter. You're one of the best in the game. That's why people come out and fucking want to hear your opinion, hear your perspective, and that's why this show is doing as well as it is. That's why Dogger Pass is killing it the way that it is as well, because you're a fucking genius. That's why. 
Well, I'll tell you what, dude. When you win, people tell you to go fuck yourself. So when you lose, <laughs> I'd expect it to be worse, right? I mean, I think that's just like a natural expectation of life. However, nobody likes to be a loser, right? So let's get back in the win column, right? Bad luck won't hold us down forever. This is a shitty little 11 fight card. Sometimes that's where we thrive. So hopefully that's one of these cases. I'm going to try to put something up for Eagle FC tomorrow. Of course... I don't really trust a lot of them lines, no. man. I don't trust those lines. So no, 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 no. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens, right? But uh, Khabib and Ab Abdelaziz on the same promotion. <laughs> I just I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you, right? Uh, anyways, thanks for the support as always. Thanks for joining me to talk the fights. And yeah, man, looking forward to hopefully cashing this weekend and then rolling into that little bit of break with uh, some renewed sense of focus. Perfect, perfect. And shout out to Steve, Steve Sparks here, letting you guys know if you can't access CloudBet, how to access CloudBet. I don't really want to say it, but you guys can read it for yourself. All right. Uh, appreciate all the love and support as always. Again, make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe. Drop a comment below as well. That is probably the most important way of getting the, the engagement and getting in the algorithm and all that stuff is by having that engagement in the comment section below. Make sure you guys uh, drop your favorite prop for this week. Let us know what you think of our props, our three best props. Do you hate them? Do you love them? Whatever it is, let us know in the comment section below. We truly appreciate it. Uh, off week next week. And it'll be another off week the following week because I'll be having my wedding festivities. So I'll be wrapped up all week. You know us Indians, we have like 17 events in a week for a wedding. So I won't be uh, able to do anything that week. We'll see. I'll talk with Cody and see if he'll be able to do it either with a replacement or by himself or if we even have a show next uh, that week for the Volkov and Rosenstrike card. So stay tuned for that information. But 100%, we will be back for UFC 275 the week of July 11th, I believe, or June 11th, I, sorry, I should say. Uh, the Glover Teixeira and Yuri Prohaska card will be back to prop you guys up for that. Um, on behalf of myself and Cody, appreciate you guys joining us as always. And good luck on your best this week. We'll see you guys in two or three weeks, hopefully after hitting a Cody PRP, because that would be even better. Let's fucking go. See you guys next time.